Instead of syncing your phone with iTunes, downloading an MP3 into your mobile device, you can stream episodes of MTR with the Stitcher Smart Radio app. Stitcher allows you to listen to My Take Radio via your 4G, 3G, or Wi-Fi connections. Downloading it is quick and easy. Head over to stitcher.com forward slash my take, and you'll even be eligible to win some money. Enter my take, all one word, in the promo box, and you'll be eligible to win $100, courtesy of My Take Radio and Stitcher. MTR Live starts right now. This coverage is live and uncensored, so if you have any small children present, you may want to have them leave the room. What's up, guys? My Take Radio, episode 150 for Thursday, August 9th, 2012. Our call-in number is 347-324-3541. Again, that call-in number is 347-324-3541. If you want to leave any messages on our feedback line, that's 347-815-0687. 347-815-0MTR. All right, guys, we made it. 150 episodes in the bag. Very excited, very proud to be part of this momentous occasion, obviously. As a host, it's a no-brainer, but there there have been always instances where you kind of want to throw in the towel, and I'm very, very glad to have powered through some of those rough patches with the show, including you know audio issues, blog talk radio issues, double booking, lost audio, you name it, we've done it. You guys have stuck through it with us, and we are very grateful to our fans I also got to thank our staff and our partners, including uh, Josh Wood from MMA Valor, who's in the chat. Got to thank our guys at Unveil. They will be doing a fighting game tournament the 18th. MTR will be there. So if you're in the tri-state area, including New York City, stop through. It's going to be at John Jay College. We're going to put some info about that on the fan page and probably on the site in the coming in the next two weeks. And if you guys want to stop through, play some fighting games, hang out with the staff from Unveil, including some of us from MTR, you are welcome to do so. Um, In addition to that, starting with 150 and going forward, usually those of you that are getting the show on iTunes usually are getting it titled uh, My Take Radio Reborn. I think we can drop that moniker after 150 episodes. I think MTR is going to stay the way it is for the foreseeable future. In addition to that, episodes of MTR will be on the site going forward, starting with 150. So for those of you that subscribe via RSS, make sure that you guys are catching the show that way as well. A quick reminder that you guys can call the call-in number and listen to the show via your mobile device. 
Some of you like to do it that way. It makes it easier for you. Just remember not to hit one. Otherwise, Slick will bring you into the screening room and ask if you're going to come on the air or not. And it's an unnecessary headache, but you can listen via the call-in number as well. You can also get the episodes, like I've said, via via the Stitcher app, My Take Radio's app, of course, and also via iTunes. So make sure you do that. Leave reviews. We'd really appreciate it. One thing I did want to announce, Stitcher sent me an email stating that they are officially going to be available for BMW vehicles, Mini Coopers, in addition to Ford vehicles as well. So if you have a BMW or a, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, if you have a BMW Mini Cooper, you will be able to check that out and listen to Stitcher directly from your vehicle. Of course, it'll let you hear MTR and all the other episodes on the Stitcher network. Uh, for some reason, Slick is telling me that someone is on the line already. I swear if it's something remotely stupid, I'm going to be highly upset. You're on the air. Who's this? You're on the air. Who's this? Hey, this is uh, Josh with MMA Valor. Hey, dude. What's up? <laughs> I just wanted to... Uh... To, to call in real quick and just uh, congratulate you on the 150th show, man. Thanks a lot, man. I mean, part of it is the hard work. You you guys also working with us, sharing our content, working together behind the scenes to make stuff happen. Uh, didn't forget all the great stuff you did for the Brawling for Boobies tournament. So, again, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Hey, no problem, man. You you do uh, you, you guys kick ass, man. So Thanks, I, man. I just wanted to crash the party first. That's all good, man. Of course, Josh, besides running MMA Valor, is the host of the MMA Pulse. You can catch him Wednesdays at, well, Wednesday slash Thursday. Wednesdays, 10 o'clock Pacific, 1 a.m. Yeah. Eastern, every Wednesday. Right? Yeah, we get the late night spot. <laughs> there you go. Oh, I appreciate it, brother. Thanks for calling in and showing us some love. All right, it's... man. All right, man, brother. Not a problem, man. Talk to you later. See ya. Ah, that's very cool, our friends at MMA Valor. Um, stopping through, showing us some love. Anyway, 150, let's get this housekeeping out of the way. Um, still on the quest for 5,000 fans, of course. Make sure to share MTR with people that like MMA, wrestling, video games, and entertainment news with a little dose of snark. We are here to deliver for you. Let's hit that 5,000 mark going forward. Um, I'd like to hit that before we hit episode 200. Also, a quick reminder, if you are getting the show on iTunes... Please make sure to rate and review the show. It helps us get a little bit closer to cracking that top 100 spot. Want to be on the front page of iTunes. I don't care if I have to go to Leo Laporte's house and beat him down to get the spot. We want to be in the top 100. Only you guys can help make that happen. So make sure if you're getting the shows via iTunes to submit your reviews as well. Uh, Also, before I forget... MTR will be syndicated starting Monday, hopefully. Final paperwork is in place, and we will be making a formal announcement on MyTakeRadio.com and also via our Facebook fan page, letting people know where we're going to be syndicated on. It's going to be another radio network, and they're going to be playing shows, I believe, Monday nights at 8. That's where we are right now. Once our paperwork is finalized and we get everything uh, completed, including all our agreements and all our files, then I will, like I said, make a formal announcement. I'm very happy to take MTR to another level, introduce it to new audiences, 
and hopefully continue to grow it for you guys. We got a ton of articles on the site this week, a lot of trailers, including the film based on Osama bin Laden, which I'm very curious to see. Catherine Bigelow, who did the Hurt Locker, is doing it. Make sure to check out the trailer on the site. Uh, We're going to do some new episodes of MTR Behind the Mic and MTR Beyond the Mic within the next two weeks. So you're going to get a nice one-two punch for that. And of course, if you are getting the MTR app, our sponsors for our gaming segment, Creaction Interactive, have been kind enough to include some character wallpapers for your mobile devices. So if you have listened to the last couple of episodes, you'll see some wallpapers in there. You can use them on your mobile device for the Aurovim game, which is being crowdsourced. We'll talk a little bit about that in the gaming segment. Now, let's get into the rest of tonight's topics. We're going to talk Raw, TNA Impact. We're going to talk a lot about Kevin Nash. Kevin Nash stuck his foot in his mouth with some commentary he made this week. And I want to talk about the backlash, not only on Twitter, but also what Mr. Nash had to say to defend his statements on Busted Open Radio earlier this week. And of course, our friends from Viju, Hayden Dalton, and Han Rondawa will be joining us to talk about Darksiders 2. They'll be calling in at around 11.30 or so. Really pumped to talk to them. This is their third visit. They've been here um, supporting MTR since the early going, including for our 100th episode. So I'm honored and privileged to have them back for a third go-around and also to talk about Darksiders 2, which everybody's looking forward to. A lot of our listeners and also a lot of our staff are pumped to crack it open on August 14th. Of of course, uh, a lot of our colleagues in the gaming industry have been playing it already. Uh, The hater in me, and I'll be 100% honest, the hater in me is a little bummed that we didn't get that opportunity, but, you know, it's all good. We're still going to support Vigil and THQ. They they are ride or die for us. They support our content. They support our work. So I got no problem dropping that 60 bucks on Tuesday. Simple as that. And for those of you that are lucky enough to get the collector's edition, I hate you guys. Um, but for those of you that, that did get your hands on it, some of you may have got it early. I've heard that a couple of places broke street date. I hope you are enjoying it as I will be on Tuesday. Of course, be on the lookout for reviews from myself and Slick for Darksiders 2 within the next few weeks as well. Also, did want to talk about what happened with the UFC Shogun and Vera event that we saw. Slick was here. We watched it live and in color, and there's a couple of things I want to address about that. So before the Darksiders crew gets in, let's talk a little bit of MMA and get the ball rolling. So UFC ha- on Fox happened this past Saturday, the main event, um, Brandon the Truth Vera taking on Mauricio Shogun Hua, also co-main event, Lyoto Machida taking on Ryan Bader. Now, all, all of these fights had championship implications. Uh, the winners of the main event or co-main event, whoever had the best finish and had the best performance, will be getting a shot at John Bones Jones. Now, a lot of people have made quite quite a bit of of noise about all of these fights and all the fighters involved. Obviously, Shogun getting quote-unquote dismantled by John Jones is something that's come up quite a bit. Same thing with Lyoto Machida. A lot of people felt that Bader shouldn't have even been considered, and Brandon Vera really was the dark horse. 
I was actually quite impressed with Brandon's performance, and I want to just talk about a couple of fights on that card that I really, really enjoyed. Um, on the featherweight side of things, the Manny Gambirian omigawa fight, I really enjoyed. I was kind of pulling for Omigawa. I think the, you know, the, the foreign fighters, they come in and they just, like I've said before, get the octagon jitters, but he looked really good in there. Gambirian, though, using a lot of strength, um, great stand-up, really engaging, kept the fight exciting. He took the fight via unanimous decision. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Some people, they talk a lot of shit about Manny Gambirian, obviously, citing um, just the way he carries himself, but I think he's a great fighter in the featherweight division at 145. He's He's been in contention before for titles, and I think he's a guy that could do a lot of damage in the featherweight division. Like I said, I enjoyed that fight very, very much. The Ronnie Yaya-Josh Grisby fight also took me by surprise, only because Grisby, 14-3, and three, very solid fighter, came in, got caught in a north-south choke position by Ronnie Yaya, really great Brazilian jiu-jitsu on display, very impressed with that submission. Um, bummed that Phil Davis and... Wagner Prado couldn't go down the way it should have. Obviously, an eye poke from Phil Davis uh, kind of fucked things up because Wagner Prado could not continue. The ringside doctor called an end to that fight, so there was a no contest due to an unintentional foul. I was kind of bummed about that. Very happy for the returning Mike Swick. He looked really good in his fight against Demarcus Johnson. I was I, I was so torn in this fight. I like Demarcus Johnson. He's a cool dude. Um, does a lot of work with Middle Easy, which is a great MMA site. And I, I was so torn. I was glad to see Swick back in there. He looked lean at 170, and he caught him with a beautiful, beautiful strike in the second round. Caught him nicely. It was a right to the face, and Demarcus Johnson was out. Awesome win in the second round. Very impressed. Joe Lazan and Jamie Varner, also I was expecting a war and they delivered. They gave us three beautiful rounds of fighting. Just exchanging submissions, stand-up. It, w- it was epic from start to finish. Joe Lazan secured the victory with an awesome triangle choke at the end of the third round, which I really enjoyed. And um, again, pulling for both of these guys. I'm glad Jamie Varner made his way back into the UFC. I think taking the fight on short notice may have impacted uh, the outcome of the fight just because Varner's an experienced fighter, but nonetheless... It was very, very enjoyable. Now, Lyoto Machida and Ryan Bader was, and, you know, Slick can agree with this, I felt it was kind of boring, only because watching Machida fight is is very tough on the eyes. He tends to um, carry himself as, as a counter-striker, which is his bread and butter, but to the casual observer, you lose interest very quickly. Now, the way Machida works is he goes, he dances around, he kind of makes his opponents play his game and engage in a way that only he can set. Usually most guys, they'll come in and they'll either stand and bang or maybe they'll shoot for the takedown. The way Machida plays this game, he tends to get ready to confuse his opponents to where they make mistakes. Very intelligent, very smart, but to most people, just highly, highly boring. Now, he finished Ryan Bader with a beautiful counterpunch. I was I was shocked the way it went. It was so quick, so sudden. He dropped them in round two, and that was it. The knockout, very academic, very nice. It almost looked like Ryan Bader ran into it. He ate a couple of punches once that first punch connected, and Lyoto Machida ends the night with a highlight reel knockout. Now, Shogun and Brandon Vera, 
the pride the pride fan in me really wanted Shogun to win. Just a, a violent fighting style that he has coming out of the Shoot Box Academy. Going in there with Brandon, the Truth Vera, who's been trying to make a comeback. He's been doing really well. They definitely did some really great stand-up in the early going. Shogun looked really good. In the later rounds, going into the championship rounds, Shogun definitely started getting winded. Now, a lot of people are blaming poor conditioning, etc., etc., etc. I honestly think that it wasn't a matter of poor conditioning. I just feel that the way that Shogun fights is is just it's rapid fire there's there's no dancing around it's it's constantly in your face ready to engage punches knees getting into the muay thai clinch getting into um head kicks same thing with brandon vera brandon vera was very game he looked pretty good i i I like the way he looked and you know what when he was adjusting his mouthpiece he got caught and a lot of people were saying that oh you know shogun's lost a step etc etc i think shogun what happens with him and bloodstain lane mentioned it in one of his recent vlogs was the fact that when Shogun comes off, comes off of long layoffs, his performances aren't quote unquote as good as when he comes in after back to back fights. Now you can make a good argument for that. And to a degree, I feel that is true because he came in when he took the belt from Machida, he looked amazing in that fight. Then there was a bit of a layoff when he fought John Jones but John Jones, not to take anything away from him, John Jones is a tremendous athlete, and he really just took it to Machida. It's just the evolution of the sport as a whole. Brandon Vera, I, I really like the way he performed in that fight. Anybody that thought he performed terribly, you guys don't watch enough MMA. I felt he was very good in that fight, and maybe he just needs to tighten up a couple of things, get in there, because to be able to hang with Shogun, you know, guys like Forrest Griffin, Leota Machida, they can attest to not faring so well against him. So I was, again, an admirable performance by Brandon the Truth Vera. I liked the card from start to finish. It was very good. Um, Some bonuses got handed out, and um, a lot of good money was given out. I mean, the funny thing was that Joe Lazan actually ended up taking two bonuses. He took the fight of the night bonus, and he took the submission of the night bonus. So he walked away with $100,000. Also, knockout of the night went to Mike Swick. He got fifty grand for his performance. Just a great night of fights, and especially on free TV. I continue to tell people that are new to the sport that want to kind of be able to talk with us about it. You watch it on free TV, and um, it's it's a better way to get accustomed to the sport. I see Ben is in the chat. Ben wrote a very great post about the the fight between Vera and Shogun. He, he, you know, Ben feels that the fight was very sloppy and it wasn't that good. Now, to, to, to a degree, Ben has a point. I mean, it, it was definitely sloppy. It wasn't the best we've seen out of these guys. But as I mentioned earlier, I always feel that Shogun and Bloodstained Lane mentioned it performs poorly after long layoffs. Guy needs to fight constantly. I mean, injuries, recovery time, those were all factors as well. But, um, it, it was it was it definitely wasn't the best performance, but we deserve to see a war on Fox, and that's something that I really enjoyed. A lot of guys they want to go in and get the quick knockouts and get the submissions, but every once in a while we need to see a war. I mean, when Shogun went to war with Henderson, it was amazing. So I really like that, especially for the Fox audience to get a war like that. It's 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 the only way that you're going to be able to sell it to the mainstream audience. They just want to see guys beat the shit out of each other. The only way you're going to get them. Simple as that. 
All right, let's get into the other MMA news. I got to give a shout out to our friends at Take On Productions, a Muay Thai promotion out of New York here. They're going to be doing their battle at the Bally's in Atlantic City this weekend. A lot of great fights, and I got to congratulate them because they actually got a TV agreement. So for those of you that have Comcast, you'll be able to watch those fights live from Atlantic City this weekend. So congratulations to Take On Productions, uh, big supporters of MTR and their deal now with MSG Sports and Comcast as well. Great night of fights for those of you that have never seen Muay Thai. Take On definitely delivers. Now let's get into some other MMA news for this week. Uh, Dana White spoke to MMA Junkie recently talking about the possibility of a 115-pound division coming to the UFC down the road. He did go on record saying that it will happen. He doesn't know how soon, but it's something that's definitely under consideration, especially with expansion into Asia, Mexico, and South America, where traditionally he feels that they are smaller guys. He went on to say, I have a feeling that the two hundred that the 125-pound division is going to be as nasty as 155 and 170. There's going to be a lot of talent there. At 125, I think you're going to see a lot of Hispanic and Asian fighters coming to compete at that weight. Now, the problem with that is, and this is something that, that Ben's elaborated on when he's been on the show and we, we've talked about it as well, that you have to st- continue building your other divisions. I mean, yeah, 155 looks good, 170 looks good, 185 looks good, but you got to work on 145. You know, you got to bring, if you're going to start bringing in 125, you got to work on 145 there's still a bit of a gap there in terms of the competitors in that division. And the one thing that concerns me having so many divisions is that guys will continue to just jump around from weight class to weight class, pulling the uh, proverbial Kenny Florian, which is up. Don't do good here. Let me drop down. Let me go here. Let me go there to try and find a way to get that belt. Now I'm not knocking that mentality, but a lot of these guys don't fight enough in a certain division before they even contemplate a jump to another. Now, in different cases, we it works to see some of those great fights. Like right now, a lot of rumors about Anderson Silva dropping a 170 to fight GSP. Okay, see that fight, you want to drop down, no problem. They're saying Anderson Silva may vacate and drop down to 170. Um, again, for, for a super fight, I don't mind. GSP going up to 185, I think GSP shouldn't at this point. Anderson Silva, he really doesn't have much anything left to prove. Like I, like I watched in a, in a couple of um, Bloodstained Lane's videos, he, he said it best. Anderson Silva's at a stage in his career, the guy's 16-0 in the UFC. He's there for the big money fights. That's it. Give the fans those amazing fights that we want to see, and and let's keep it at that. Anderson Silva at, that, at 185... Sure, there are fights with with Chris Weidman, Michael Bisping. There's a lot of guys in there that he can fight. But in terms of draw, pay-per-view money, there's really nothing left for him to prove in that division. Now, if he drops down to 170 and and makes a run for the belt at 170 and, and does the super fight with GSP, then we're looking at something a little crazy right there because obviously... You know, that 16-0 and fight streak going down to a to a lighter weight class where the waters are treacherous because there's, you know, GSP, Carlos Condit, Nick Diaz. The list goes on of guys that are dangerous at one, at, at 170. Jake Ellenberger, um, Koscheck. I mean, you know, Anderson Silva striking against GSP's um, 
I guess, smother and cover, if you want to call it. Yeah, GSP works out with Freddie Roach, and he has some really good hands. But Ben even said it in the chat that at 170, um, G, uh, GSP would get killed by Anderson Silva. I think that Anderson Silva's striking is on a whole other level. And dropping to 170, the super fight definitely would be an amazing payday for the UFC. I, 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 I don't mind seeing that at all. I really don't like what I've taught, what I've talked about on numerous episodes where, you know, John Jones doesn't want to fight Anderson Silva because they don't want to hurt each other's legacy. This bullshit. You are in an organization to fight. That's it. It doesn't matter if you're the face of the organization or not, or if you guys, your wives are best friends, or you guys train together. None of that matters. It's, you know, the way I see it, it's, we need the super fights. We need the fights that will make the fans go crazy and not hesitate on dropping $60 on a card. Anderson Silva is at that stage. Go up to 205 or drop to 170. But the Weidman fight, the Bisping fight, yeah, like I said, those fights are good if he wants to defend the belt, but those aren't the fights that are going to make people go and drop $60 to watch a pay-per-view. I know plenty of guys that go, they watch the pay-per-view at the bar, and they're better off for it. Maybe they'll spend $60 on beers, but if the pay-per-view is garbage, they don't feel gypped. That's where Anderson Silva is, in my opinion. Another guy that I wanted to talk about, and he was an opponent of John Jones, is Matt Hamill. Matt Hamill, as many of you know, retired not too long ago, and he is coming out of retirement to take on Roger Hollett at UFC 152. That's going to be happening in Toronto, Ontario on September 22nd with the main card, of course, on pay-per-view and the prelims on FX and Facebook. I'm actually looking forward to seeing Matt Hamill fight. He's a, he, it's, a, it's a feel-good story. I like Matt Hamill, but the only thing with him is that his, his skill set has not evolved to be, a, not to say a complete mixed martial artist, but given, given that you have to relay commands to him and sign, and, and you know he has to focus on reading his coach's lips, the problem with Hamill is tremendous wrestling, great pedigree, but his head movement isn't there. He's definitely susceptible to um, a really good striker just picking him apart on the feet. Now, taking it to the ground from a wrestling standpoint, Matt Hamill, his wrestling is, is amazing. So, him coming out of retirement, maybe maybe he got the itch to come back. Maybe the UFC offered him some money. But I always like watching Matt fight, and I was bummed to see him retire so early. Again, some people, gatekeeper status, like Ben said in, in the chat, which you can definitely apply that to Hamill, but Hamill's always a test for anybody, so I'm pumped to see that fight. Um... Did want to talk about this BJ Penn, Rory McDonald situation. For those of you that don't know, Rory McDonald had to withdraw from the BJ Penn fight. He suffered a major cut in training over his right eye. Um, I believe it took uh, 40, 40, 38 to 48 stitches, according to Dana White, to close it up. As of right now, we don't know what's going to happen with BJ Penn. A couple of guys are, um, you know, a couple of guys are challenging. Uh, BJ Penn via Twitter talking shit, trying to get those fights. CR the killer was trying to bait BJ Penn into a fight. I don't know what BJ Penn's story is, but he is not the only one without an opponent. Seems that Jake Ellenberger is also without an opponent as Josh Koscheck had to pull out of his bout for UFC 151. It's being said that Koscheck suffered a bulging disc in his back and had to pull out. So right now we don't know what the story is with an opponent for Ellenberger. 
And um, 151 was going to be happening September 1st in Las Vegas. So we'll see how that goes. Now, obviously, with that announcement, we everybody fished around, fished around. Oh, who's going to be his opponent? He's going to be his opponent. But it was announced that Jay Haran is making his return to the UFC, and he will be Jake Ellenberger's opponent. So that, it's good to see Jay Haran back in the UFC. Of course, he joins Dennis Hallman, Thiago Tavares, who are going to be meeting Dennis Seaver and Eddie Yagen, Danny Castillo and Michael Johnson. And of course, your main event, John Jones taking on Hendo that uh, September 1st. And of course, on the prelims, you got a couple of good fights Well, uh, good fights as well, including uh, Darren Kriukshank, who was on Fight Insight Radio not too long ago, Takeya Mizugaki also on that card, and Kyle Noak as well. Another fan favorite, Kung Lee, will be headlining the UFC's first show in China. He will be taking on Rich Franklin. Uh, that fight originally was supposed to happen at UFC 148, but um, Kung Lee ended up fighting Kote, and you know we know we know where it goes from there. Now it's good to see Kung Lee headlining that show. A fight with him and Rich Franklin, it, it's going to be fun. I don't really see anything too crazy coming out of it. I don't know if there's going to be any contender ramifications from the fight, but I think Kung Lee's going to go in there. He's going to have the hometown crowd behind him. He's going to get ready to stand and bang with Rich Franklin. Rich Franklin's a good fighter. He's really clowning himself that he wants to make another run at the title, but hey, a guy can dream. I think after the two no surgeries that Anderson Silva gave him, Rich Franklin better pray to whatever God he believes in that Anderson Silva drops the belt, because frankly, if he does get another title shot, I think Anderson Silva will give him a third reconstructive surgery because it's it's just a, a completely different fight when you fight Anderson Silva. And we've talked about that. Ben is Ben has mentioned it as well. Last week on the show, I mentioned that we were going to get the ref cam for UFC on Fox Four. Turns out that they did not pull the trigger on it, um, primarily because it just didn't look good. They were still making some tweaks, but we will be seeing it in the future. Um, I was bummed just because the ref cam is always kind of cool. It was something we got to see in Pride, especially when the ref jumps in for things like knockouts, especially, you know, the the Demarcus Johnson knockout, the um, Brandon Vera um, TKO. Things like that work with the uh, ref cam. It looks really cool. Um, And lastly, got to talk a little bit about Strike Force. Of course, we got. uh, Hold on a second. Ah, Slick said that Hanrun Dawa is on line one. I will take him in one second. Uh, let me just wrap this up. Uh, Cyborg is being pushed to drop down to 135 after her suspension is over. Clearly, they are trying to get that fight with Ronda Rousey. Um, we got to see what goes on after her suspension is finished. I think that she had a tough enough time cutting weight as it is to force her um, to go down to... 135 yeah you'll get that big money fight with ronda and that's good but honestly it, it's it's two different types of athletes you cyborg tremendous muay thai practitioner she she's not a slouch in the jujitsu department either ronda's good but to do that kind of a fight sure it, it'll be great for a payday and people who tune in and people who go crazy with it and everybody loves ronda rousey hell dana white even said in a statement recently um that he sees Ronda as being one of the first women to fight in a UFC octagon. So 
Dana White, of course, flip-flopping as usual. This is a guy that said, oh, you know, female makes martial arts, blah, blah, blah. And then he started softening his stance as soon as he realized that there's legit money to be made. If you guys saw the weigh-ins um, a couple of days back, you saw that he had a Ronda Rousey t-shirt with the ESPN Ronda Rousey cover on. This is the same guy, like I said, that um, kind of spoke not negatively about female mixed martial arts, but definitely did not push the case. Now he's talking about, oh, you know, Ronda can fight in a UFC cage in the, in, in the future. So, again, flip-flopping on Dana White's part, but you know what? If it promotes the sport of female mixed martial arts, we can take we can take whatever we can get. And the last bit of news I wanted to address before I bring Han, and I believe Hayden may be on the line as well, is a situation involving John Jones. John Jones is officially announced as a Nike-sponsored athlete. Now, everybody was super pumped for it. It opens the door for countless MMA fighters now to get mainstream deals with Nike, including guys like GSP, maybe after his Under Armour deal is done. Anderson Silva has himself a deal. Um, The crazy thing is that CM Punk actually is part of this controversy. Um, When the global endorsement deal was announced, CM Punk stated, let's reward more drunk drivers with endorsement deals. Hashtag responsibility. Of course, we all know CM Punk is straight edge. He doesn't drink. He doesn't do drugs. He doesn't smoke. Was referring to what happened with John Jones May 19th when he crashed his Bentley into the utility pole. Now, um, I can understand where CM Punk is coming from. And when Ben and I discussed this on the fan page, Ben, Ben was saying, you know, what, what's the deal with the sponsorship? If Jones loses, what's the story? But I think we're at a stage where they want to use John Jones as a face for mixed martial arts with Nike. So it's, it's a completely new market for them. You're probably going to get Nike rash guards, uh, Nike kick pads, fight shorts, et cetera, et cetera. This is, this is a bigger partnership than anybody is being led to believe because it's not just a partnership with John Jones. It's Nike embracing mixed martial arts. And that is huge. That is really huge. And of course, um, John Jones manager, Malki Kawa addressed the situation as well. He, um, he, he gave a little bit of a statement regarding the Nike deal, which I'll share with you guys. He said it legitimizes the sport in such a big way. It opens the door for every other fighter out there. Because now, if you're an intelligent manager or marketing guy, you go to people and say, hey, look, Nike's in our sport. They've got John Jones. You can't get John Jones. Nike's got him. But there are other opportunities. I honestly think that, it's like I said, it's a great door opener for mixed martial arts. But one thing that when, when it comes to Nike, you got to be very wary of is the fact that they can drop athletes at the at the drop of a hat, especially if they do something stupid you know, rape jokes on tweets, all that stuff, that that shit has to stop. Otherwise, Nike will take their ball and go home. All right, so with that said, that wraps up MMA. Let's bring on the Darksiders and get this started. Aiden, what's going on, brother? Welcome back. <laughs> what's up, Rich, my man? Yeah, 
How's everything? Doing good, man. Doing very good. Let me bring uh, Han, uh, bring him in as well. Han, what's going on? Hey, what's up, man? Welcome back. What's up, Hades? What's up, my crazy sheet friend? <laughs> it is it is great to have you guys back. Of course, you guys uh, doing your your third appearance with us. First time when Darksiders dropped. Second time when you guys broke a million copies. Now for Darksiders 2 and for our 150th episode. So pumped to have you guys here. Looking forward to Darksiders 2 next week. Um, how have things been? I know, Hayden, you've been dealing with some stuff behind the scenes. How's everything? It's been absolutely brilliant. I mean, obviously it's been a little bit different than the uh, our first project. You know, we weren't really that well known, so it was a bit more low-key. But now it's been an absolute revelation, really. I mean, media interest, press interest, and merchandise interest, like everything, press, uh, public, you know, it's been absolutely amazing. So we've been doing a lot more, like, press tours and, you know, magazines have wanted to speak to us a little bit more, spreading the word about the game. It's been, it's amazing. You know, it's people like you and the podcasts and uh, the listeners and everything like that really helped us get the word out about this game, you know. So we, we're very thankful for that. That's why we, we're more than thankful to come back and speak to you guys again. Han, what about you? How have you been holding up, especially now that Darksiders has just become a life of its own? Um, a lot of what just Hayden said um, is pretty true. Um, I think a lot of us are just kind of recovering because we were in, like, at the end of a game, we're kind of all going into crunch. And some of us are kind of taking a little bit of time off and uh, sort of convalescing, um, just letting the dust settle, I guess. We're kind of, like, blinking at the daylight and we're like, wow, this is kind of like 6 o'clock, what do we do now? And uh, normally we'd be, like, being crazy and working at the, uh, and finishing off the game. So uh, there's a little bit of DLC work going on. Uh, other than that, it's uh, really kind of winding down. We're kind of just sort of trying to re-energize and getting gearing up for, like, uh, you know, something fresh and new. So, uh, but it's been, it's been a great ride, though. Well, one, one thing I wanted to start off with is... How how quickly did you guys start working on two after everything died down for one? Did you guys have a bit of a layoff or was there a, a decent amount of time between? Because it almost feels like, like yesterday when I spoke to you guys and you guys were wrapping everything up. You guys had the, the million, the million uh, units moved for the game. Everybody was celebrating and to jump right into two, it felt like it just came and went so quickly. Yeah, well, what happened for us is uh, basically really hard to finish the first one off. So that basically Vigil and TSU basically turned around and said, you guys take a month off and just, just relax, you know, decompress, have fun. So they gave us a month off and we had a good time. We had an awesome map party. Everyone had a really good time. And then we came back and we said, you know what, we're not really sure how this is going to sell, but, you know, the, the press, initial press is good. Let's just start coming up with ideas for a second one. So we actually went straight back in and started coming up with ideas and how the second one was going to work, like, pretty much day one. So we went back to the original sketches that Joe did, and, you know, Han and his boys started doing concepts of what we could do with, you know, a new world. And we started flashing around story stuff for the first, you know, first month or so, and then, you know, it started to flash out in pre-production and started to come up with ideas. Like I said, it all pretty much died day one when we got back. So, yeah, it was, it was pretty busy. Yeah, now we, we're seeing so much more Darksiders merch, a um, lot of stuff with, you know, Project Triforce. We're seeing statues. We're seeing all that. Did you think that the game would reach this level in such a short time? I remember 
getting my mini statue of war when I got the game and I sent you a tweet. I'm like, oh, you know, Hayden, I got it. And it kind of stopped there. And then it just snowballed into all this stuff. Art, you know, the art book dropped, uh, the soundtrack, tons of stuff came out. Did, did you, did you guys expect it to get this crazy? No, I mean, not, obviously we always had high hopes that it'd do well, but when you've got someone like Joe Mad, you know, he's an IP creator, IP creator, you know, he's a very creative guy, so once he starts to help create the visuals in a world like that, you know, we know that that's just very marketable, I mean, the world, the characters, everything's, you know, it's built for stuff like comic books, films, you know, models, things like that, so the first, you know, no one really wanted to touch us, you know, it was like a new game, and even getting those little models that we did at, at the beginning, they were just something like, you know, we managed to squeeze out of uh, a media outlet, but obviously once again started to come out, people saw the art book that Udon did with us, and they could see that this was like a viable product. You know, it was a, it's a very interesting IP to be in, uh, involved with. So as we got through Dark Siders 2, you could start seeing that people started coming to us like, we really want to do models for you guys. Like, you know, and then we got the Warren Room model, and then you've probably seen the Samuel model that's out there as well by the uh, uh, by the sort of guys, and then obviously we've got the Triforce. Uh, one coming out, the Project Triforce one coming out for death. So people can see that it's a, it's a great product. And now, yeah, we've got people writing, like Ari has come along, he's done the, uh, the Abomination Vault for us, and we've got another one coming out uh, in a few months' time called Death Door, and there's the comics as well. I mean, it's, it's been absolutely awesome. So this time around, people know that the public's excited by it and they can see how, you know, viable a product it is. So uh, they've obviously seen the reaction from the public as well and gone, wow, these guys love this stuff. And I think it's done really well. I mean, the Udon book, I think you'll struggle to get that now. I think I've actually seen it going for like $200, which is ridiculous. And uh, it's really shocked everyone. They've even done like second runs and they're sold out. And, you know, we're obviously working on a second one as well. So it's just been, I don't, I didn't, I didn't think it get this big so quickly, to be honest. And, you know, maybe once we start getting through the second one, but it's been brilliant. Yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I've been very, very blessed to be part of the ride. And with with this second game, did the did the dev team had to ge- had to grow to meet the demands of getting the game out, or did you guys kind of keep the same core group of guys and only sought out additional help for you know debugging and things of that nature? We always kept the core team from the first game. That's never changed. I mean. If anything, we added some people. We also, you know, we've got more people helping out from uh, third party parties. We've got some people helping out in Montreal with props and in China, a few other places. Uh, but most of the stuff is done internally. All, all, all our stuff is proprietary. So most of our stuff is done in-house and we're only a relatively small studio. Um, I mean, Hank and Dutch for this. Most of the stuff done externally was really like art resources, really. Well, one, Hank, uh, yeah, we actually had a, we had a really good relationship. Go ahead, guys. We had a really good relationship with the with the um, the external department. Uh, we had the external art director come in, and we kind of sat down for about a week, went through all the art style because it's a pretty tricky art style to get. Um, you know, I've seen a lot of people uh, try to emulate Joe's style, and uh, they get pretty close, but you know, they're kind of missing the core elements, which is motion. It's not just the physical style. And uh, so I sat down and kind of with the art director who was our external um, guy, and, and we, I was really pleasantly surprised by the results. We got absolutely great results. Um, but the team, to answer your question, did the team grow? We we grew in knowledge, and yeah, we there's a couple of people. You know, there's always change outs. You know, you know how it is with like some like you have a band, and sometimes you, you change up the 
the band a little bit, and uh, we had some new people come on board. Some people went to pastures new, and uh, the great thing is we had we did have a core that basically understood the style really well. Um, obviously, you know Hayden can talk about the design. There's obviously a lot of key core design changes, which definitely change the scope of the game for sure. It's a much bigger game. Well, with, with regards to the yeah. scope, oh, go ahead, go ahead, Hayden. Well, I was just going to say, we, we did uh, get some help near the end just from the original uh, secondary team that we had at Vigil. You know, obviously some guys from the uh, Dark Millennium team, the DMR team, came over and helped us out. And, you know, because we had such a big world to finish off, and they helped out a little bit on, like, encounters with some of the creatures and, and some of our loot stuff, because they'd done a little bit of that as well. So they had a bit of experience on that side. So that they managed to come on and just on board to help us like uh, three quarters through. Right, right near the end, you know, it was we'd done most of the big work. It was really just kind of filling in all the content. So they were they were brilliant coming help, you know, to have those people who already knew our engine and our system and everything to come and jump on board was like really helpful for us. But we didn't grow massively bigger than our original team on the first one, and I think we're, we're pretty proud of that. If you look at the size of the game that we've done this time around again, I think it's going to shock a few people. Yeah, the, the 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 scope of the game, and based on so much of the stuff that we've been seeing, the pictures, all the assets that THQ has been sending me, it, it's giving it's giving me a a brand new look at the universe that you guys created. But I did want to talk a little bit about the design elements that you were talking about, going from transitioning from war to death. I noticed that war, larger character, far more aggressive. Death, uh, he has a slimmer profile navigates a little differently than war does when did you guys decide to go in that direction because you know you kind of expected the the trend set by war to continue between each horseman but seeing death and seeing him navigate the levels so smoothly and like i said he just he just kind of glides through the levels where where did you guys get the idea to even start that type of a design uh well what, what it all really stems back to is um Joe's original concept. He did a concept for the horsemen. You've probably seen them, the whole four horsemen, you know, with stripes in there, furies in there, in death and war, they're all in the same picture. Right, I've seen and, only um, the headshots. Yeah, yeah. He, he's done like, he did like a full body shot and um, basically he always had the raven with him and he had uh, like two sides on him. And, you know, what we gleaned from that was, right, okay, well, you know, death was very nearly the, the main character in the first game. So we said, right, it's going to be death next time around. We know that for a fact. But we looked at him, and then we wrote down some bullet points of what he was all about, like what type of character he is. We said, okay, well, he's the arrogant one of the, you know, the oldest one and the kind of punk rock character of the uh, all the four of the horsemen. He's like kind of like the leader. And uh, just by the looks of him, we thought, well, he's a lot more wiry than war. He's a lot more slim. He's more agile. So that we thought, right, okay, well, that means that we can extend our, our traversal a little bit more, you know, let him do some more interesting things through the environment, like, you know, the wall running vertically, horizontally, swinging underneath the beams, hopping on top of the beams, all that sort of stuff sort of fed into this kind of gangly, agile, fluid-looking character. And um, that's where all that basic stuff comes from. And then things like the the loot and, uh, you know, the additional NPCs and the side quests and stuff like that, they were like big things that we wanted to do in the first game but never had a chance to do. So when we put all those things together, it came into what I like to think is is 2.5. I know people might have heard that quote before, but I think when they play it, I think they'll realize what I'm talking about because um, the, the sort of reaction we've had from the media at these press events and stuff when we let them play the game, they've been very, very surprised on how much we've actually changed from the first one. But we managed to keep the core 
that was really important to the first game, which is, you know, the melee combat and, you know, the level design. The level design is absolutely crucial. That sort of style of level design and unlocking new items and things like that was very cool for us to keep the same. So it felt like Darksiders, but it felt more than just like a new car paint. Well, the, what looking at war at War's design and then Death, um, being an 80s baby, I saw shades of Skeletor from Masters of the Universe in Death's design, <laughs> uh, the coloring, little, little things here and there. Um, d- w- did you guys notice that in some of the designs, or was that something that was kind of done as a nod to that to that era and to that character? Just because looking at Death, especially since you guys added so much customization now, you know, you can custom- customize the way he looks, I was like, man, he really does look a lot in certain instances like Skeletor. Well, I'm not a um, big Thundercats fan, but I'll let Han answer that one. <laughs> Um, you know, uh, I don't think it was intentional, really. Um, I think it's one of those things where basically, as the more we introduced the colors, we decided that uh, war, obviously, the key color there was red, and we really wanted to push this kind of purple color. We tried a few different iterations, but purple seemed to be like a good color for death, just to bring him out and, and basically make him, uh, you know, unique to uh, the other horsemen. And... Um, so really, it's funny how easy it is for people to start connecting dots and start, you know, there can only take a few things for people to start thinking that it looks like something else. Um, when you really look at them closely, Skeletor's face is actually bright yellow and he wears a hood. And um, uh, Death is actually, um, he, there's times when he's actually a very pale gray, but some depending on where, what you're looking at, what screen or what publication you're looking at, he can look really blue. And then the blue with the purple is a key Skeletor color, obviously. Um, but if you look at it, he has the green and a lot of other stuff. And um, he doesn't really have the other some of the other elements that Skeletor had. But really, I think it was one of those things where it just kind of happened, really, to be honest. And people make the connections. And sometimes you can't see it. This is where sometimes, as artists, we're working on something. And we're going down that rabbit hole of design. And we may not see the wood for the trees and sometimes it just takes someone who's a non-artist say hey that looks like you know a rabbit face or something like that and you're like you didn't realize it and you say oh totally it does that the stuff that on the top looks like rabbit ears or whatever and um but yeah no it was totally not intentional i don't think it was i think once the the colors played a bigger part in that resemblance that people are picking up on than the actual design because i mean skeletal is pretty much a skeleton face and um, Death has has no has no mouth or like he he, he has like a mask really to be honest just the eye sockets of the nose and this super long hair so in some ways it's I think it's the colors that are really uh, grabbing people's attention from that point of view I mean I, I I'm like you like yourself I'm an 80s baby too and um, well as in like, I was growing up in the 80s I'm probably older than that but um, <laughs> I love all things 80s I, I absolutely adore stuff from the 80s the music the all TV shows and everything like that, but no, it actually wasn't intentionally done that way. Wow, that's crazy. I know that uh, in passing. I know that in passing, Joe said to me one time that when he'd done the coloring stuff for Death, uh, and when he was well, at least when they're thinking about the coloring, he did make sure that because um, at one point they did actually have features in the face, but they took that all away just in case it got a little bit too close to skeletal. <laughs> I think he could see it, and he kind of was aware of it once he'd done it, but it certainly wasn't done with that in mind. I think it was. He took it so far and went, ah, this could be seen as, you know, as X. So he went away and kind of changed it a little bit more just to make sure that uh, it wasn't 
too close to certain people, even though, like I said, it wasn't done with that intent. Is um, Slick uh, asked this question, is, is death meant to be the most powerful of the horsemen? I don't think, think, well, I think he, 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 Go yeah, on. You, you got on. that one. Go on. <laughs> go on. Go on. Uh, well, I guess we might both have a different um, idea on this, but, you know, death certainly is, like I said, is the oldest one, is probably the most cunning and agile one of the, um, probably the most intelligent of all the four. Uh, but I don't know if he's actually be seen as the most powerful, but it doesn't mean that he's, you know, he wouldn't be the outright winner of all four of them. Uh, I mean, if you've read any of the Abomination Vault stuff, you'll know that there's certain times where Death kind of questions himself if he could take on war and actually win him because he's the younger one, but he's, he's much more he's much more stronger than he is. So there's definitely a lot of stuff going on in his head. But uh, I, I'd say if I could choose to be any one of the four, it'd be Death. There you go. Han, what do you got? <laughs> Come on, Han, jump in. Whenever you fire, Han, just jump in. I, I just thought, you know, uh, you know, let Hayden answer that since he's uh, pretty keen to answer that question. Um, but yeah, um, I think um, uh, my take on it is that they all bring something to the fold. They're all specialists in their own particular area, so uh, they kind of they, they're always kind of envisioned as a, a kind of a super team, really, to be honest. And uh, you know, people kind of uh, saw these kind of biblical connotations, but really, the, apart from the names, war and death. That's pretty much where it ends as angels and demons, and that's all really that was we needed really to take take off and take it to a, to all different directions. And uh, e- even the names of the other st- horsemen, strife and fury, we we, we just dropped uh, the idea of famine and pestilence. And you know, talking to Joe, basically the main thing is that it, they're just not cool names. I don't think anybody want to play someone who's basically famine. Um, but um, yeah, I, I just see them as like having the individual powers. The one thing I would say about death is. He is kind of the unofficial leader. They're kind of like they're kind of brothers. They're all from the same race, and uh, well, brothers and one sister. And uh, so he's kind of like really super protective of them. So uh, he kind of sees like he looks out for them in some ways, and that's you'll see a lot of that in the story. Well, one thing of concern, and a lot of a lot of our listeners brought it to my attention, especially as I put up more stuff, is the fact that Darksiders Two story takes place during the same time period as the first game. Now, of course, for those of us that beat the game, you know, War War looks up, he says he's not alone, you see the other the other horsemen approaching. How did you guys tackle that? Because it kind of feels like, okay, it ends the game with War looking, the horsemen arriving. I mean, without I, I'm sure you guys are gonna tell me to play the game to find out, but were you were you guys concerned that that was going to be an issue for some people when they looked at it because it's almost like playing part one all over again, you know? Um, I think when you when you do play the game and go through the story, you realize that it's not exactly, you know, it's certainly not like going through the first game again. But I mean, yeah, well, of course we have those reservations. I mean, we're just like any other games players. We see what people expected at the end of the first one, and we really, you know saw that as like this could be a chance to do something what the something kind of implied at the end of the first one but we, right. we just weren't ready as a team you know so we just thought because um, we got a lot of questions like what are the other horsemen doing they just kind of sat around smoking cigarettes in the smoking uh, <laughs> jackets or whatever I mean what are these guys doing they're fast asleep so we just basically posed the question then well if we had to do it again another single play again you know 
what what was Geth doing? And because he was the character, it's like, well, let's tell his story and how it inter, you know, interlocked with the first one. And then we'll see if we're in a position to expand the game out even further at the end of that one. And that's, that's pretty much what we posed ourselves with that question. And uh, we absolutely understand what people were expend, expecting at the end of the first one. So uh, we don't want to let them down. I mean, I think... Uh, I think the game will more than speak for itself, and uh, the story as it pans out, you'll find a lot of more interesting stuff, that, uh, background stuff that you, you know you kind of hinted at in the first one. You'll find more about the races and stuff like that, the characters in the game. You'll find. I mean, people like Olsen, right? The Smith, who's one of my favorite characters in the game. You get to meet the race where he came from, the place where he grew up, and uh, then know him and kind of heard him. He's a bit of a legend, though, you know. So there's a lot of kind of little in things that people from the first game will kind of get a kick out of in, in the second game, and then you'll you know get to know even more about what went on and the reasons why they did things that they did in the first one. So I think it's going to be, it's going to make the world certainly a lot more cohesive than the first one. Yeah, I like the Smith. I also like yeah. the, um, you know, the English skeleton. Will we be seeing him again? <laughs> <laughs> Wicked K, well, I, I think, I actually think Wicked K has become our kind of like official visual games mascot. So, I mean, what would any team be without their mascot? Let's just put it that way. All right. I'm I'm happy to hear that. Um, you guys, you know, going 360, PS3, Windows, you guys are going the on-live route. I know you're probably sworn to secrecy for this, but I want to talk about this game making its way to the Wii U. And, you know, making that transition over. Have you Have you guys worked on that or gone into that? platform yet in any shape or form or is that something that's kind of on the back burner until this general release is done and then you guys can focus your energies to wrap that ip around that console uh well we've had a dedicated team based on the wii u platform and uh it's going well i mean we obviously can't say anything about it i mean i was playing it this morning uh so you know it's never you know the game's never too far away from us in some uh, shape or form but um yeah, I mean, that's all we can say about it. We can't really go into it other than, you know, we've got a dedicated team on it. It's coming along well. Um, we do some interesting things with the controller, and, that, and that's pretty much it. I mean, it's, it's pretty much a, a closed subject. Oh, I, I figured it would be just because I know Nintendo will probably send guys in black suits to your house, but um, it, it, was wor- it was worth asking. Yeah, they're asking. probably the outside. Yeah, I can I can imagine just because the console has been so secretive and all of us talking about you know the the dual screen and stuff and I'm I'm a little apprehensive. I'm not gonna lie to you about the concept. Um, I'm shocked that they actually gave you guys a shot because they're so family friendly. But obviously it's a it's it's a changing of the tide. So I'm glad to see that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean. He thought they'd see a lot of mature games like that, especially on launch for you know a new platform from Nintendo. I mean, I mean we're all big Nintendo fans, Vigil. So you know once we knew about um, you know there was a chance for us to be a launch title on on the new console, it was like everyone was high fiving in the studio. You know we thought it was awesome. So it's been a, a great opportunity for us, and uh, um, we can't wait to see it out on the shelf along with uh, you know the rest of them. When when you guys were here the last time, we talked about you guys entertaining the concept of multiplayer, um, you know, with the other horsemen. Did that come up again this time, or did you feel we got to focus on the single-player campaign, and then based on how the game fares, maybe we'll approach that on the next go-around? Um, well, 
I mean, yeah, I mean, it came up and we, you know, we talked about it, but the, the risk still seemed too much for us. I mean, again, we're still a relatively new team and we wanted to kind of dip our toes in a little bit with a little bit more of the social side. And we did a little bit of that in this one. You know, we've got the tone system in the game where you can share items with your friends and we will have this thing called the player tracker, which I don't think made it into the final game, which was going to kind of show you like updates of what your friend's doing as you're playing it and, uh, you know, and things like that. So... We tried to just do small elements of like, you know, online connection and then we were going to, you know, we'd see that as like maybe a stepping stone for something that we might want to do in the future with the franchise. But it was always a single player, um, another single player adventure. Plus, you know, it is, as I've said this many times, it is a dying breed and I think there's still a market out there for the single player action adventure. People love that stuff. They like to just immerse themselves in a character, you know, and just explore a world and not feel under any any pressures to play with a friend, you know, sometimes they just want to sit in their own bedroom and play the game, and we could just focus on that, we didn't have to worry about co-op balancing or multiplayer balancing and, you know, uh, all the combat and all the puzzles and worry about all the AI and all of the things that come along with doing something that is multiplayer or co-op based, and we could just focus on, let's just make a, a super pumped up version of the first game, people obviously liked it, so, and you know, we didn't want to alienate the people who loved the first one too, you know, if we jump to something like, uh, you know, four-player co-op, I'm sure there would be another facet of people who loved it, but, you know, the original people may not have uh, may not have gone for it. So it's our chance to do the game that we originally, the first one, wanted to be, certainly much closer, and, and see how the, you know, the public reacts to that and see if they still want this type of game. Well, I mean, the the other two horsemen, I like anything else, they, they, there's always the part of me that'd be like, yeah, you know, multiplayer would be awesome playing a, a campaign with, with all four horsemen. I mean, the concept I've, I've always felt, and I talked about this with uh, two of our staff, is playing the game as war or death, and then another guy can drop into the campaign, kind of like they did with Crackdown, where it wouldn't be very intrusive, or and, and you can continue the campaign with one of the other horsemen together with the primary player, that concept always, I always felt would be a, a perfect fit for the series. Obviously, I'm not telling you guys how to do your job, but I, I always felt that that would work well just because you got the four characters and you could kind of jump in, kind of Streets of Rage, Final Fight style. Yeah, I think that works when there's no dependencies of uh, additional players. But if we were going to do something with the same sort of puzzle base that we had, we might want to you know, utilize the skills of the different horsemen. And if you're playing on your own, then... That would be quite hard to do. So we have a couple of options there, right? We we have the secondary characters characters are AI designed, or the player can like hot swap between the characters when he's playing alone and use the abilities of the different horsemen. So we'll be able to like hot switch between the characters. You know, there's a few other ways that we could do it as well. But if there's any dependencies for anything of the other characters in the game, which you'd kind of want to a certain extent, then the, the the others have to be a presence there even when you're only playing on your own. So we have to think about that as well. Unless we just said, ah, it's just a big, you know, a big brawling game and, you know, there's some traversal, but nothing's interdependent on any of the skill sets of the other horsemen. I mean, maybe you could, you know, hide secrets away and, you know, basically, uh, you know, think of the individual horsemen like gear items like from the original game. So they all have their own different skill sets. So things are you know, additional content's hidden away by the, the certain skill sets of the different horsemen. We could do that, but again, you'd still be missing out on a lot of uh, puzzle and content that you could do with your friends. No, if I understand. On your own. So, yeah, there's a lot of things we have to think about by just doing that one step forward to do co-op. Uh, the ca- character customization, of course, we talked about that a little early on. 
Um, what made you guys want to decide to to add that in there? Because you, changing death's look, I mean, it, it almost screams like everybody has their own vision of death, which is true. I mean, from a religious sense and just from from a gaming sense, death looks different in every game and every universe. In, to the point where in, in in Marvel Comics, death is a woman. You know, depicted as a woman with Thanos. Uh, say, you know, it varies. Why 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 the character customization? We, you know, who came up with the concept and why? <laughs> it, it was definitely a, a group thing. I mean, we all knew we were going to do loot, right? So loot um, just automatically gives you, you know, you can equip different equipment. So instantly you've got some sort of like customization there. Uh, and one thing that we wanted to do is that our vision of death that you see traditionally is basically death reperform. So the last thing that people would see on the battlefield would be basically definitely super form, right? So then the version that you actually play is, you know, the kind of like the player version of death and you can kind of customize them the way you want them to be. I mean, one tagline that we had when we were doing the game uh, early on was choose your own death. And that was like the tagline that we used to, to kind of keep talking about every time we talked about customization, we talked about death, we talked about breadth of the game. And then, um, we, I basically sat down with Hannah and Han started doing a lot of the uh, the armor designs and stuff and he took the original basis of some sketches that Joe did and went out and did a crap load of armor sets. He pretty much like concepted them all. So I'll, I'll let Han talk a little bit about that. Um, yeah, so, I mean, you know, you, you, to answer your question, you said, um, you know, what was the idea behind it? And, uh, you know, a lot of it was kind of the, the loot system you know, the idea was that lots of weapons, lots of armor sets, and, you know, I, I think Hayden had, a, like, a, I don't know, we had, like, a, t- a whole bunch of them, I think, and then we halved them at one point, and then I think we brought them all back again. Um, it, the idea was to just give you a chance to not only customize the look of death in a way that you, that, that, that kind of befitted the way you played, whether it was magic user or melee uh, or combat, you know, where we have the two, you have the uh, Necromancer and the Harbinger, uh, but also from a, um, just to sort of keep, keep the kind of like the, 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 the death theme, we, we purposely kept, make sure that he didn't cover his chest and make sure that you kind of had a sense of the fact that this is a slim guy, um, much, you know, to keep that difference between him and war. And, um, so yeah, yeah. As Hayden said, we did a lot of concepts to try and make sure that that stayed because we could have just done some random loot and random armor sets, and really he would have ended up looking like a jester. And uh, but we, there are armor sets you can you can get that once you complete them. Uh, I, I believe there's like a there's a reward or there's an incentive to do that also. Um, but yeah, um, and we kind of started theming some of them, like making one which was angelic, one which was more crowfather. And uh, the, the key, the key areas that Joe really picked on, which was fantastic to to act as a compass for us, for, from a design point of view, a visual design point of view, was we had the, the 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 kind of rogue element, which was the wanderer, and he's kind of like your kind of rogue thief type guy. Then we had a necromancer who was more of like a mage magic user, and we did go the kind of heavy armor route, which was the slayer guy. Uh, but um, I think that's just up to the player to sort of decide how they want to do that. So you know, just putting that kind of customization in the ha- in the in the, uh, the hands the hands of the player, which was again changed it up from the first one. You know, we didn't want to do a straight up sequel. Uh, I, I, I like Hayden's phrase, which is it's a 2.5 Dark Side of 2.5. So 
this is where we kind of like you know push it out a little bit more uh, for the player. Well, one thing I did I did want to ask since you know Hayden gave so much insight into you designing some of the customization. How much fun did you have designing the weapons and doing all the stuff with Death Scythe? Because I've seen so many different um, interpretations of it. You know, the dual wielding, the large one, the different designs for them. Where where did you start drawing inspiration from for some of the weapons that Death uses? Uh, it's funny because the um, we we always start with like Joe. Joe kind of like starts off with a couple of ideas and drawings and stuff like that, and he kind of like led the way in the way that this guy uses his stuff. So because then obviously design comes into it as well. So like you know the scythe would so the scythe. I think I think Hayden coined this phrase. It's uh, it's almost like a switchblade of weapons. And uh, uh, like a, a Swiss Army knife—that's what it was. Yeah, Swiss Army knife of weapons, where it can go into a pole arm and you know extend the reach, and then it can go into you can do dual wield, and uh, you can do like, a whole bunch of things with it. So um, and it even fits together to become like a traditional scythe, also. So that was kind of like an idea that was kind of thrown around and uh, became a kind of basis for how these sides would work, and. Um, but the, uh, the, the it, was, it was a lot of fun to design those for sure. I mean, I did a, a lot of the initial designs, and we kind of got we took had some artists take it to finish. Um, but we just picked on certain areas. We just felt like you know let, let's just pick on um, make a kind of even a, we had a, we had a maker style one. Uh, we had like an angelic style one, and it's interesting because the size is a pretty straightforward um, you know a piece a, a weapon. It's basically like a staff with like this kind of hooked blade kind of thing. Uh, but we started playing around with the idea of teeth and bone in there and um like you know it became becoming like a a heavy cleaver type weapon so we, just, we, we i think we really pushed the boundaries of what a size could be and uh so it was, it was kind of cool it was it was a it was a lot of fun we did it really really fast we were going to outsource it at one point and uh you know one of our producers felt well let, let's just try and do it in-house and we kind of came in weekends and we kind of done it all got it got all the designs done for it Pretty much every weapon, almost in a month. It was it was actually a fantastic effort. We had all the internal guys working on it. Our lead character guy was working on it. I was doing designs, and uh, we were very hands on on that. So um, yeah, again, it was a lot of fun. But these ideas only just come to you. you. Just draw something, and you know, it's it's hard to sort of say where that came from. But it's 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 really down to that collaborative nature that we got going on um, at a Vigil, which is really really fantastic. It's, it's absolutely absolutely fertile for that kind of creativity. Yeah, the weapon designs that I saw and, and just some of the ideas that you guys had already implemented with War, I said to myself, there's going to be so many crazy things with the scythe, especially because War had already been able to use it in-game, and I said to myself, okay, so we'll probably see something like that. But then when I saw him dual-wielding them and carrying them on his back, I was like, yeah, this is this is going to be serious. Almost you know, almost like a, like a nin, like ninja hook blade style, which I liked. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, well, it left Absolutely, us really yeah. wide open. Yeah, it allowed us a lot to do a lot of stuff with the combat. So, yeah, we had a lot of fun, like, splitting it and throwing it out like a, a huge, you know, like a shuriken blade and, like, like Han said, pole arm and all the rest of it. And it just allowed us to have two different fight styles as well. Like, we have this fast-moving style, and then you can do, like, delay moves where they'll put it into one big scythe and do, like, big swirling, like, uh, 360 moves and things like that. So... Visually and both design-wise, it allowed us a lot of flexibility. So it was a lot of fun. And uh, I think Han doesn't really talk about it much, but I mean, he spent a lot of time making sure that because we split all our um, armor sets up into our equipment into like four different categories, like 
spending a lot of time getting that stuff so it would fit together when you when you basically were it in any different combination, you know, so it didn't look too crazy. I mean you touched on it briefly, but that stuff takes a little bit of time as well, just like colours, shapes, everything. Everything's important when you're doing something that can be completely, you know, mixed up by the player. The player can use any combination. So he has to be very aware of that when um when the boys are, you know, like visually designing the stuff. Yeah, I you know Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely I mean Hayden's right about that. Um that because that was what I was referring to about if you have too many pieces of armor that are very opposite and uh, the colors don't match and the style of them don't match, um, then you end up looking like a jester wearing all these kind of very different extreme looking pieces of armor. But um, yeah, that it's fine that balance between where they're different enough and it feel like they were sets for other armor sets, but at the same time, not so far, so, not so far on the polar opposite ends that they look completely like terrible when you're wearing them. And uh, that that's tricky. That's pretty hard. Yeah, it's it's funny because it, having it take place, you know, similar to the campaign for War, I, I, there's so many characters that I'm looking forward to. Um, it's funny because Slick, Slick just sent me a a, a question. He goes, "Does that does the, does that scumbag the Watcher <laughs> make an appearance?" <laughs> I like I like the Watcher. I really I, he definitely was a slimy guy. Especially you know we we joked about that the last time you guys were here. But you know he is he is a he is a character that you know Slick yeah. has He's issue a favorite with. Of ours. So we'll, we'll definitely be seeing yeah, him. Yeah, he doesn't really appear in this one. I think because uh, um, the Watcher is really assigned by the, the, we assume there's lots of Watchers and uh, they're kind of assigned by the Chard Council. So uh, Death, Death's on a different journey. So he wasn't. Re- you know, he, he's gone rogue here. He's gone AWOL. He's not really on a mission from the Chard Council. The Chard Council main. The whole thing about the the, the, the the horsemen are they maintain the balance. The Chard Council send them out basically to go and do that. And uh, and this is basically Death going say right. Um, enough's enough. I want to know what happened. So I'm at, I'm going out there and I'm going to ask some pretty tough questions and I'm coming for you, Crowfather. I got some questions for you. So um, yeah. this is where this is where his personality is different from Wars. You know, we uh, you may have heard you know Hayden talk about it a little bit, and uh, you know, in past interviews, how the personalities differ and the fighting styles differ. Right. Um, War Wars like you know he's your non-questioning soldier, and you know he's he's a total bulldozer, but you know he's loyal to a fault. Whereas Desk, like you know, he's got he has problems with authority figures basically. <laughs> And, uh, well, you know, he, 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 he... Oh, go ahead. Sorry, go finish yep. up, I didn't need to cut you off there. I'm going to carry on. Nah, go for it. Go for it. It's all right. No, I was going to say a little thing that maybe people didn't know. At one point, we did actually um, think about making a, a female watcher to go along with Death. And she was going to be more of like... Um, she certainly wasn't going to be snidey like the, the original one in the first one. She was going to be more like... Um, I don't know if she would fancy death, but she'd certainly have a, a very different way of looking at death than the original Watcher. But then we just thought, well, screw that. Death wouldn't put up with that. He'd, he'd rather die than, you know, be shackled to someone like a, like a beast such as the Watcher. So that's why we end up going with the Crow. So like a neutral figure that, um, you know, death would... He, he pretty much puts up with dust. You know, he's, he, dust probably always, you know, runs a fine line of being his next... Um, uh, dinner on the road, as it were. So he he, he just kind of gets by with death because no one else could put up with him. So we kind of we scrapped that idea pretty early on. But that was something that Joe was going to look into. I think he might have done some very early concepts early on, but it, we never finished that. 
Well, one thing I, I, I wanted to definitely touch on was, you know, you guys, when, when San Diego Comic-Con dropped, you guys uh, unveiled that Michael Wincott was going to be the voice of death. What, how long did it take you guys to kind of add a voice to death? Because, you know, uh, Michael Wincott as an actor, he's been, he, he, you know, he has, a, he has a good, like, deeper voice. I mean, you know, his work, his work in The Count of Monte Cristo, he's been in a couple of movies, and he has a very recognizable voice. How long did it take you guys to come up with the idea of, hey, you know, we want death to sound like this? Because sometimes, you know, death sounds very, you know, very sinister, very, you know, yes type of a yeah. type of a deal. So, <laughs> you, you know, what, where did where, how long did it take you guys to come up with the concept for, for death's voice to, to do something that would just be, hey, this is our death when you hear him speak? I think, um, to be honest, uh, Michael Wincott was pretty much one of the first person that I wanted to be death. I mean, it was very, pretty much the first idea in our minds that we wanted him. What, what we usually do in development, we, we, we have an Excel sheet. We, have a, we list all the different characters that are in the game. And then we have three roles. We have a role one, which is this is a character that we really, really want. And he was in our first role. So it would be like actor one, famous actor, this is the guy we want. Then we'd have a, a secondary selection, which is also maybe another relatively well-known actor. If we can't get the first guy, we get the second guy. And if we can't get the second guy, then we'd have a third role, which would be really good voice actors that we really love. And, and that's, that's what we did for every single character in the game. Michael Wincott was the very first name on, on Death's List. He was the first guy, and he was the first person that we got. And uh, it was brilliant, because uh, Ryan Stefanelli, who, who was our producer, and was also the lead level designer on the first game, basically help push um, uh, the guys at THQ and, uh, and everywhere else to make sure that we got Michael Wincott as well and we got him on board. And he was absolutely phenomenal. And as you can see, he's just done a, a, an advert for us where he lent his voice again to the game and he signed some stuff for us and everything. And I really can't think of anyone else who, who would play death better than him. If, we, if, if money wasn't an object, he'd still be the guy that I'd want to play death. Nice. That lot of, yeah, lot of, so lot of sorry, sorry to, uh, sorry, let me just, sorry, you basically said how long did it take to get the voice in there. Well, obviously we don't usually have anything to put in right at the start of the game because, you know, the character doesn't exist and we're still modeling him, we're still deciding what he can do. So I'll just usually come up with like an Excel sheet of default actions of what he'll be doing. Like, you know, we know he'll be fighting guys, we know he'll be changing into the weaker form, we know he'll be doing this and that. And then we list out all the different like little one-liners that we want the character to set. And then we kind of create a script for that person based on the in-game actions and then the stuff that he does in the story. And then we get someone, you know, a writer to come in and then, you know, rewrite my crappy dialogue and <laughs> whatever it is that I've done for him. Uh, and then usually we start to get the voice stuff in probably about, it all depends, between 50 and 75% through the game we start to get voice stuff in pretty early on, uh, relatively early. Uh, and it's not usually the whole stuff. We'll just get little bits in, like grunts and things like that, and maybe him saying a few lines to the to the bird or whatever it is, uh, just to see what it's like. But uh, so yeah, we, it's usually like about, about halfway through to three quarters through is when we start to get the voices in. I I saw you know a lot of pictures are putting there's there's a scene obviously where war fights death. I'm sure I'm sure that's a scene that uh, raised a lot of eyebrows for a couple of reasons. Um, my question regarding that is: Were you able to get some of the other uh, voice actors from the first game, how many of them uh, came back to voice some of the other characters? Obviously, you know, Liam O'Brien, um, Vernon Wells, get those guys. Did you get most of those guys back, and um, or did you have new did you get guys? Lamar? I think we got that guy, yeah. 
Salamara. Yeah, you got Salamara. Yeah, you could come back from Bogren. <coughs> we got um, Vernon Wells back for uh, Samuel. Um, and a few others that we, you haven't seen yet, but they're back again. Basically, every single character that we brought back from DS1 used the same voice actor. Oh, okay, um, cool. And we've got some, we've got some cool, you know, cool voices in there. You know, and Troy Baker comes in and does a voice for us as well, and you might know him as the, you know, the guy who did the voice to, you know, the, the, the Last of Us. He's playing the main character in the Last of Us game. Um, but he's a phenomenal voice actor as well. We've got, like I said, I think we've got a, a brilliant voice act, um, cast, and it's something that I remember the, the public picking up on and really liking was the voice cast that we had on the first one. So it was really important that we kept that quality up, because you know that's part of the, you know, to believe someone, you know, the voice and the, and the body language and everything, every little thing's vastly important. So to get someone with a voice that you could believe in, who could really bring over the emotion and the, you know, the vocal range that we needed from our characters, it's massively important that the voice actors are good. So we uh, we managed to get all the guys back from DS1 and also get some new people in who I think have done a phenomenal job too. Yeah, I'm I'm pumped for that because the the voices that went with the with the character designs just fit them so well. I mean, like War War had more of a nice booming voice versus you know now with um with Michael doing Death's voice. Death is more he he has the more noble quality to kind of touch on what Hayden said where he you know death is definitely a little bit more pompous a little full of himself because he knows you know he doesn't he doesn't respect authority and he kind of he kind of has more of a chip on his shoulder than war did and you can hear that in the voices absolutely I mean yeah I mean was the sort of person like if uh, um, like a, a general given an order he'd be he'd be right in there and he'd follow it to the law and he'd do an awesome job death would be if it suits me, I'll do it. If not, screw you. I'm going to do my own thing. And that, that's pretty much the characters between the two. And uh, I certainly think we've got the character actors to to fully, you know, realise those two different characters. And uh, there's, there's some stuff that Death does in the game, which is pretty funny that, you, you know, you'll definitely see that sort of arrogant side of him come out. And you've probably seen a little bit of it in the, uh, in the trailers as well. You know, he's got his snide one-liners with, you know, my brother's... Um, Oh, I forgot the line now. Oh God, uh, my brother's fake, con- you know, uh, concerns me. Yours does not, you know. He it feels like sort of one-liners that he says a lot through the game. Like, uh, you really get to see his character a lot more. I I gotta commend you guys on making sure Death rode a pale horse. That was one thing that I that that stuck yeah. out to me immediately <laughs> because when I when I wrote an article for the site, you know, I said, "Behold, Death Death approaches upon a pale horse," and it it was so good to see that because it's something so small that most people may find to be insignificant, but it's something that just is synonymous when discussing death, whether in literature or or just in in general context. So it, it was really nice to see that, you know. And I, it brought a smile to my face. I'm like, look at that. He does have a pale horse. Nice work. <laughs> that that that's cool. I'm glad you kind of picked up on that. Um, you know, it was one of those. It was it was definitely things like that. Those little details that we try to consider. I mean, even the names, like if you think about it, it's war and ruin, it's death and despair. So there's kind of play on words there. Now, it, sometimes it was tricky because war apparently is depicted as on a red horse. So we try to put the fire and brimstone in there to reflect it, but really him looking on, him being on a kind of like this dark shadowy horse with that kind of, I don't know how many of you people out there are fans of like Frank Rosetta, and there's a particular painting he did, and it's called Death Dealer. And uh, it's just a perfect picture, and it just seemed to be the right thing to do at the time. So sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But, yeah, you're right. Um, 
bringing him on a pale horse was uh, was uh, definitely um, it was great to see that realized. Are we are we gonna uh, are we gonna be seeing more expanded? combat on the horse i mean one of my favorite stages in in the first one was you know riding the horse and shooting the worm with the gun you know nice little western flare in there nice little nod to that a little bit of gun smoke i really i really appreciated that are, did you guys expand on that more or are you guys are you guys going more for you know the stealthiness and the and the wall running of, of death we certainly did focus on more on just um on traversal this time around, but you know, there's at least one boss battle that you need the horse to, uh, to beat the character with. So, you know, that was important. Uh, and there's a few areas where you do need the horse to get around, but, uh, we didn't, we didn't try to, you know, push that out too much because we thought it might, you know, go too far away from the core of the game. But, you know, we use it probably about, probably a similar amount of what we did on the, on the first game. But uh, yeah. certainly we wanted to get the horse right from the start because, you know, we knew that we probably left it a little bit too long in the first game and we've got a, such a big world this time around, it was important that you had, you know, a fast way to get around right from the start. Yeah, the um, it, it's funny because they were, you know, seeing seeing the horse and the focus on it, I said to myself, good, I hope we can see more of that. So I'm glad that you guys kind of gave him an acknowledgement to be used much like it was used in, in the first Darksiders, at least in a boss battle and navigating some of the terrain. I, you know, it, it, it's, it's good to see that because expanding the, the, the universe so much and running around on foot, I'm sure you guys said this is going to extend the, the length of the game tremendously. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, we, the key thing your people, people noticed straight away was that we gave the horse much, I mean, right from the beginning, actually, on, on Darksiders 2, uh, where where I, I can't remember how far it was, Hayden, that you got the, the horse in Darksiders one. It was you got ruined a fair fair way into the game on the on the first one, I think. Yeah, it was about seventy percent of the way in, but I, I felt even though it was far in, I thought the build up and the moment of getting the horse was one of the key things of Darksiders one. I think it really one. I think the player really appreciated the bloody horse at that point because there was not much frigging running around. Yep that being able to get on something that could get them around quicker um, is a big thing. But the fact that there's that union between the two and the, the player gets to see that union, of the, of, you know, the, the uh, war and the horse bonding as it did in the arena, that was like a, it's a massive moment in the game. So even though it was far on in the game, I think when they got it, I think players really, really sort of, um, you know, enjoyed that moment. And it was a massive moment for them. It was an epic moment. It was like, now I can be like a true horseman and, we were really ramped up the damage when you got on the horse, so the players could see the massive difference between not just the traversal speed, but when they started hitting demons on the horses, we were just like exploding guys left and right. So it was a—I uh, think it was important for us to do that because you know there's definitely a, a connection between the rider and the horse, and I, I think that one was much deeper in the first one between the two. You actually got to see that. Now, when you meet death and despair, that, that bond's already happening and, it, you know, it's already sort of like kind of supposedly known by, you know, the, the two. But in, in the first one, it was something that you had to learn and you saw that thing, that moment happen, which I thought was brilliant. So, very important, but, uh, yeah, the pacing was very different than the first time around. Well, I, I, liked, I liked the introduction of, of Ruin in the first one because it helped you connect with the character of war on a different level. It wasn't just a mindless guy running through the apocalypse, killing everything. Like he had, he had a, a code, he had a, a moral code and a, and a loyalty to, you know, the, the, the guy that kind of gets him around 
it's it's almost you know the the love of man and dog you know i really appreciated that yeah i mean the thing is these guys are horsemen right so you know he's got to be to to be the full the real deal the the full deal horseman he's got to be reunited with his horse so yeah no that's really cool the last few things i wanted to run by you guys of course the big the, the announcement that dropped earlier this week with with crucible mode um was that was that something you guys intended to drop so close to release or is that something that you just felt was it, it was a, a necessary not a necessary evil but just another way to give players a, a way to enjoy the game when when they're done with the campaign obviously you know you guys threw in the the, the game plus also for a new playthrough which you know, it, it, I have a question about that also, but I I want to talk a little about Crucible Mode for, first and the idea behind it. Okay. Well, the Crucible came around. It was kind of a cool thing that came around, really, because at one point we opened up to the entire team. Like, if you've got a, an idea that you want to get in the game, you know, throw a pitch forward and we'll look at it, and, you know, the one that wins, we'll, we'll put it in the game. And we talked about, like, a Bloody Palace-style thing before, you know, like some sort of ring of best combat, but... One of the guys from the team, Ben Curitan, who's also our lead combat designer, came up with the idea of the Crucible, but not only did he come up with the idea of it, he actually scripted out what the Crucible would be, and we could physically see it and play it, and we went, right, this is it, this is cool, and it made its way into the game, and then he basically worked on that pretty much from the time that he came up with the idea all the way through to the end, you know, so it was his baby all the way through. Um, I helped him come up with, like, you know, the... The scripting systems for the, uh, the the characters like Cargon, who's, who comes from the uh, the Crucible and things like that, and some of the assets that he needed. So I basically we basically just backed him to do the thing that he wanted to put in the game, which I thought was kind of cool because uh, you know usually when you work in a team environment like this, you know the most of the ideas come from above, and you know the the rest of the team work together to create. But this time, you know, someone from the team just came up with a brand new idea and a whole new different component to the game, and we put it in the game, and I thought it was awesome. Um, and, uh, you know, it fitted into the game. We you know we're doing the loot. We wanted a place where people could go back to and, you know, grind on the enemies and just test their combat skills over and over again, and they could just keep going back as much as they wanted. So it, it, it was a great addition, and it was something that we kept, obviously, quite close to our chest until right near the end, and now they've, they've unlocked that and let people know about it, which I think, which I think is great. And uh, the idea of, you know, sort of gambling between the, the floors, I think, is cool. So... You know, you fight five waves and you get the chance to get an item. And if you if you decide to carry on going and die any time between the five floors that are coming next, then you you don't get anything. But if you keep going, the the thing that's in the chest and the thing or the item that you get at the end of the five levels gets better and better. So the longer that you can hold out with not taking the prize, the better the item will be. So the player can play that so many different times because there's up to a hundred levels in there. So. Players are going to get a lot of fun in there. Certainly, combat-based players are going to love it. Yeah, the the, the concept when I saw it, I was like, yeah, that's a, that's going to be fun just for people to play around with the weapons and different methods of attack because everybody has a different way of playing the game. Some, you know, like me personally, and and that's also just from playing God of War. I just like to run in there and decimate as quickly as possible <laughs> because it's it's just the way the way I like to play. There are a lot of people that like to focus on an enemy, wear that one down, and then jump to the next one. I just like to go in there and swing for the fences so it's it's going to be fun playing that and just working on ways to play the game better you know 
Yeah, well, the thing is, I think when you when you start to play the new game, I think you'll realise pretty close in, like once you start to see the loop system start to open up, you're really going to have to start making some decisions of what's important to you as a player. So if you're all about getting up close, personal, just like dishing out the damage and trying to take it, then, you know, focus on strength, focus on defence and focus on, because our guys are much more aggressive this time around. They're not going to hold up. Right. And believe me, apocalyptic is much it's much harder than what it was in the first one. And obviously, you guys have probably heard of nightmare mode. So, once you finish the game the first time, you get the chance to hit it on on nightmare. So, you die once, that's it. You back to the start. You're done. So, and we and we put that in there just we just we just basically smacking the players in the face with the goal and saying we're just challenging. You don't have to do it. And you don't get any achievements for it. You don't get anything other than you know. There's like a stat in the stat screen where you can see, you know, a number of times the nightmare mode's been completed with a, you know, a stat at the side of it. So you can, you can, there's a little bit of bragging rights to your friends, but we don't make a big announcement about it. It's really for if the player wants to, te- you know, test himself in that way. So if you want to do it. Nice. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to digging into that. And of course, Game Plus, you know, let you beating the get beating the game, taking all those skills and equipments for a new playthrough. One thing I did want to ask about that. And it's the the element you added in the first one with war and building the, you know, the shards for the sword. Will, will we see something like that similar for death or is it more just about skill building and acquiring and upgrading the weapons? Will there be, you know, that one ultimate weapon that when you get it, it's like, you know, holy shit. <laughs> uh, we've got... Our loot system is it's so it's so huge. I mean, we have possessed weapons as well, and uh, what possessed weapons are is you can get them at any level, but they're really low like drop rate, so they're quite rare. But when you get them, you can actually see other items into it, and depending on what type of stats and elements you're feeding into that weapon, uh, gives you a chance to when it hits a and it, when it when it basically levels up you get a chance to choose a different stat to apply to that weapon. And you can actually name it. So, I don't know, which is like Death Hammer, whatever you want to call the thing. Nice. Um, and you get to apply different stats to it, and, you, and it will grow with you up to like five levels. So, it's really hard for us to put. I don't, I don't think there is one ultimate weapon. There's certainly one or two that are incredibly, incredibly powerful that you get, depending on whatever you do in the game. Uh, but then certainly some of the possessed weapons can be made to be extremely, extremely frigging crazy depending on how you've actually built it up and when you get it. So it, we couldn't put one name on, a, on an item. Just know that I think there's going to be a lot of people saying, I think I've got the best weapon and someone will come around the corner and they'll trump them, trump them with a much more powerful weapon. So, oh. you know, because it could depend on, you know, you're going through your second time playthrough. Did you get the item when you was at level 30 or did you get it at level 25 or whatever it might be? And then all depending on what you you fed it will give you a completely different outcome than your friends. That's awesome. I I'm actually looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to that only because, you know, when I played the game through the first time, I didn't get all the shards for the blade. And then Slick went and he he was like, "Yeah, dude, I got the blade. It's amazing." And I'm like, "Get, gotta go back and play the game." So I kind of I kind of feel good that my my decisions and the way I play the game can just help level up the weapons I have. Not that I don't mind playing through it you know, two or three times, it's, it, that's cool, but it's like trying to get all the pieces for that sword, I wanted to rip my eyes out of my sockets. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was a bit of a test, and, you know, what we have done in this one, which were, um, uh, I told the guys about on the official um, Dark Siders forums, is that 
we're bringing the Abyssal Armor back, and that is a really, really powerful set of armor. Nice. Um, and we wanted it to be like the Abyssal Armor is kind of like the Horseman's official battle armor. Do you know, it's kind of like uh, I think it's the only set that has like um, combined stats that actually amplify when you have them all together. So it's a really, really powerful armor set. But that's really, really hard to get. I'm telling you, if you thought the first one was hard, this one is probably ten times that because it's it, it, so many different parts of the game that you have to play to obtain each one of the pieces. I'm telling you, it's going to be, I'm going to be really proud of the person, the first person who comes forward and said that they got the Abyssal Armor, let's put it that way. Well, that's a homework assignment for Slick. I'm sure Slick is, Slick is all about, com- <laughs> Slick is about com- completing the game. Like, like, like he is platinum trophy master amongst our staff. Like he'll go and he'll put in that work and he'll be like, look, here's the armor. How does it feel? So I'm, I'm sure I'm sure you'll you'll get a screenshot from me or you'll get something from Slick um, showing that. All right, I'm pretty sure it's not going to be any time soon. though. we'll see. It's going to take you some time. But, uh, there you go, I'll, Slick. The I'll, gauntlet's I'll the been thrown down. <laughs> the gauntlet has been thrown down. I did I did want to touch on the the amazing community you guys have built. You know, going on the Facebook page, seeing guys getting war tattooed on them, seeing death tattooed. That was. It was it was such an eye opener for me as as a fan and just knowing you guys and kind of growing the show along with watching you guys grow. Um, it, it it was so amazing just to see that that people are, are are willing to 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 take their love of their character to to that of all the characters to that level. You know, you see the 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 level the sigil for for ruin or just a complete back piece. I know there was the one guy who put up a piece with a complete back piece of war and it just looked it looked insane. So it was amazing to see how far you guys have come. And, and personally as a fan and just of, as somebody that knows you guys and, you know, Hayden a little more personally, you know, I want to commend you for that. Yeah. Believe me, when I see people getting tattooed up like that, when you get, when I see people getting inked with that dark side of stuff on, I mean, it's, it, it blows me away. I mean, it's, it, it's awesome. I mean, I, I think, sometimes it's not just about the game, right? I definitely think there's a certain part of the visuals that people just love. You know, you just love that style, that Joe art style. And, you know, when you see some of the ink work that's been done, it looks amazing. So even if it was based on the game or not, it just looks stunning. And uh, it was funny because Joe actually got tattooed by one of our ex-artists who used to work at our place. He used to do a bit of tattooing on the side. And one time he just went over to his house, he was right, I want the... I want the Horseman logo doing on my arm, and he just did it at his house there and then, and basically tied up Joe on his arm, which I thought was which was awesome. Uh, so yeah, that will be carrying with him now for the rest of his life, and he's, he's really proud of it. But uh, when we see people outside of Vigil getting it done, it, it, it does still blow us away. I mean, we've seen some great work, and we've seen some stuff that's posted to the forums, and we can't believe it. We're like, wow, these people must have spent a hell of a lot of money and going through a lot of pain and a lot of time to to put, um, you know, characters from my game or visuals from my game in on, on their body. It's amazing. It's, it's incredibly humbling as well. It's like, wow, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty stunning. Well, when I read that you guys, the, the collector's editions sold out immediately, I mean, Slick brought it to my attention. He said, he's like, hey, man, I'm trying to get a collector's edition, and they're gone. I was like, the game the game's not going to be out for a while. What the hell is going on? So that, we, I already knew at that point that it was, we we were on to something far bigger than the first one to see it go to that level where every online retailer didn't even have the collector's edition in stock. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, everyone thinks it's hypeable, right? Like when, 
I sent out a couple of tweets saying, you know, the collector's edition is going quickly and we don't know how long it's going to last. And obviously people just see that and go, yeah, yeah, whatever, developer, you're just trying to sell more units. But I was genuinely concerned because I knew that people who wanted it wouldn't get it. And um, it was crazy once uh, we had an email back from THQ saying, there's basically no more out there now. They can only get them from THQ. So then obviously people think again, ah, whatever, they've probably got tons of stock. It's THQ just trying to drive people to their sites. And then all of a sudden, THQ have run out of stock and they've got nothing left. And we were like, holy shit. And I'm, and I'm finding out from friends back in the UK that there's nothing in the UK that they can pick up either or around Europe. And it's just, it's just been insane. We're like, wow, people are, I mean, because obviously, you know, $99 it's a frigging lot of money to pay out for a game, right? We know that. We know it's, it's an incredible amount of money. And some people, you know, they save up like two, three months to get this. We know it's an important um, expenditure for them. And, you know, we, we didn't really think that it... I mean, we were hoping it was going to do well, but we never really thought it'd sell out like this. It's gone a lot better than I think anyone expected. THQ, Vigil, everyone, I think it's gone a, a ton better because we, we, we wanted to do a, a collective edition on the first game, but, it, you know, THQ looked and said, well... You know, you, you're not proven. We don't know if the game's going to do well. And I totally understand that. It made a lot of financial sense. And, you know, looking back, it, maybe it wouldn't have been a good idea. But doing it this time around, it's just, it literally has flown off the off the shelves. And I think it surprised everyone. So if you can get all that. I mean, I saw one going on frigging eBay for like $200. Yep, ridiculous. I saw that. $155. So, um yeah, it, 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 it's really stunned all of us at work, and we we uh, we can't believe it. I mean, we're we're all still like biting our, biting our nails and looking at the way things are going, on, reading all the forums and seeing all the little bit of hints and tips that the reviewers are giving and stuff like that. You know, the people who've got the game already, and it's a very nervous time for us at work. No, no, you got you guys will do good. Um, regarding that, also, who who makes the final call on what goes into the collector's editions? Like, how did you did you guys just have a powwow and say, all right, what are we giving? You know, extra armor or this or that, and we're gonna pack in a statue. What? How did how does that come to pass when when you guys decide what's going into the collector's editions? Well, a lot of time we we'd be just be getting on with the main game, right? And then uh, THQ would send an email saying, you know, we're thinking of having these components within the collector's edition, what do you think? And uh, we sort of bounced around different ideas. And at one point, it was going to be like a, um, a model of death in there instead of the mask. But then the mask became just so popular. You know, they were kind of giving out um, some of the preview events and the journalists loved them. And a lot of people were saying, oh, my God, it'd be awesome to have a mask. And Simon Watts at the UK office, really, uh, sorry, the US office, really started to push for that to be in the collector's edition. We all thought it was a cool idea. And uh, I think, Ham, were you involved with the little art book that's in there as well? Yeah, uh, there's a couple of ideas knocking around, and the mask actually originated as a kind of journalist kind of gift thing they did in uh, um, a press junket thing I did in Rome, and uh, um, actually it was in Rome, it wasn't Amsterdam, and uh, so they, I think they had the idea to package that as part of the the special edition, and you know, and art, there's a couple of things you you do in special editions, don't you? You know, there's the art book, and then there's like prints and what have you. So um, I think there's some ideas thrown around, uh, as Hayden said, but um, the art book was just kind of, it's, a, it's a mini version, by the way, it's not the full art book, but it's actually just like a mini version of it, and uh, it's got some uh, some of the more key art in there, and then, you know, you also get, like, way more art in the, the, the much bigger book. But, yeah, this is a, it's kind of tricky to say how it came about. It's one of those things where it's just, 
um, there was probably some of the key elements that were in there, and then there's just the packaging, and then the, um, you know, the the, the 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 mask. I think it's become a really big key thing. I'm actually wondering if it's the mask that has become the the thing that people have really resonated with, and and hence why it's kind of sold out. That could have been the thing because the mask is pretty nice. Yeah, the mask is awesome. I've seen the picture of it. Yeah, I was very, I was very bummed. I, I, you know, I couldn't get it. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna pick up the regular copy. But I'm sure, I'm sure I'll find a way to acquire the mask, much like I acquired the war statue. So I'm not, I'm not too concerned. <laughs> um, you know, when I started, when I started the show, you held I, out, Rich. Huh? You held out. What are you playing at? You held out. What well, no. You? Well, you know what? You know what happened was that, you know, I when I when I messaged you and I'm like, hey, you know what's going on with THQ? They don't show us any love. Cause it's like you know we get we get four we get forty emails full of assets and I go yeah that's great you know we'll publish whatever we want because you know if if Hayden I said to myself if Hayden calls me and he says look chop off your leg and you get it done because you guys believe, believed in us you know so I was kind of bummed that THQ sent us all the assets and I was like hey you know what, what's going on with a copy of the game or something you know just because we want to get it out there and we have an audience that is a hundred percent behind these guys and, and you, obviously off air Hayden and I discussed it so we know what the deal is but I'm you know I'll still support it like I said I have no reservations about walking in there and dropping 60 bucks at a, at a moment's notice I would have dropped I would have dropped 100 either way just because like I said you know I like I like what Vigil's work is done and you know I've invested my brand and myself into what you guys do no I mean the you give us some earth time and you, yeah I mean the fact that you dedicated some earth time to talk about it and allow us, allow us to come and talk about the game and stuff, you know, we appreciate that as well and that's why when you mentioned yeah. us doing a, a follow-up, you know, Ham basically nearly tore my arm off to come back on again, so we was like, yeah, we'll do it again and uh, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure and honour, so I mean, you know, it's like, I've said it before, it's, it's people like you, Rich, and a lot of the word of mouth from the fans on the forums and stuff that have helped us have the strength and uh, the push that we've had from THQ and uh, and everything it, it really helps. I mean, we know we we sold we sold a decent amount in the first game, but it's it's done so over time, and I think it's that over time with the word of mouth, which is really you know like it's kind of like that slow snowball effect. It's been a slow burner, and it's because of the word of mouth that um, it's done that. And uh, we certainly don't forget you know the people who you know help put the word out there about the game, and you know the people who were fans of it on the first one. You know I had belief that the second one was going to be just as good. So um, yeah, no, we we had no troubles coming on here and speaking with you guys. For whatever, I'm, I could go another half hour on here. I don't care. It's uh, it's all fun for me. <laughs> good, I'm, I believe. I, yeah, believe he would. He would as well. Well, I'm you know I'm glad oh, you guys. Hand, we know you never. <laughs> Uh, I'm glad. I'm glad you guys at least took the, you know, took the time to do it. And um, just to wrap everything up up in a neat bow. But obviously, besides following Darksiders on Facebook, where else can fans go to keep up with you guys and just keep up with some of the news for the game besides Facebook? Which you, whoever's running that Facebook page, does an awesome job running it. Yeah, the Facebook page is uh, run by, I think, Matt, Matt Everett over at THQ. I mean, so you've got that. I mean, me and Han, yeah, and me and Han are both on Twitter. I mean, I tend to just push, as soon as I get information on that I can release, I tend to talk about it on Twitter whenever I can, which is at Hayden Dalton, and uh, Han is at Han Landauer. 
um, so you know you can follow us guys and you know we'll try and share stuff as soon as we get it and I'll probably follow Peyton more because he, he twitters way more than I do I'm actually really terrible at twitter, twittering I'm actually I'm, I'm actually terrible socially <laughs> <laughs> yeah your, your yeah, twitter was quiet for a while you can't shut him up <laughs> no I, I think what we're going to do Han I think uh, I think Han should try and get hold of a lot more of uh, the the concept artwork and try you know posting some of that stuff on Twitter I think people will get a bit of a kick out of that I think they'll like it yeah I think yeah no I definitely got to get better at that so no it'll it'll I think it'll work well um Hayden I did I did want to want to bust your chops a little bit what's up with your blog dude what happened I subscribed. I have it you know in my feed. You know what? You know what? Shit happened. That's what happened. <laughs> it happened. A big pile of shit. It's called game development. Uh, uh, so yes, that's what's been taking up my life in the last few months. I've been I've been dying to update it because I've got so much to 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 write about and update people about. But yeah, it's it's just been crazy. We're busy. We're actually coming down to we're actually cooling down a little bit now. So um, obviously the game's done. And, you know, there's some focus on DLC now, but all our all our thoughts, obviously, are with you know the release of the game. So uh, I'm I'm going to be updating it again pretty soon. And you know, Hank keeps saying that he's going to get his site up and running again. So um, <laughs> you should start seeing seeing and hearing a little bit more from us now. We can actually spend a little bit more time and you know talk about our endeavors and things that are going on in the dark side as well, or whatever it is. I mean, the way I write a blog most of the time, I'm not trying to. Um, structure what I write I just look to it I just write it as I think of it so a lot of times it's not even edited that well it's just this is just me thinking and just talking out loud you know like writing out loud as I'm thinking it so it's usually not massively well written but it's All just right. thoughts as it comes out you know, so it's pretty raw well like I said I like I like when I subscribed to it and I read it that was why it just helped at, at least just because like I said we, we kind of communicate off air it just helped us help uh, most of us connect better and get a little bit more insight. Of course, it's always nice to see the, what you guys do for the game and for the you know and the work you do. But it also just on, on a personal level, you know, knowing what you guys like, what what films you watch, because all of that stuff you end up it ends up making its way into the games. It ends up making its way into other work. So it's always cool to just interact with you on that kind of level. That's why I was kind of you know breaking your balls about it, only because it, you know it's not it's nice to know you personally. You know, versus just oh, you know, they do this really cool game I like. Yeah, well, I mean, cool. I keep telling how they should just talk a little bit more to people about, um, yeah. you know, I'm just waiting for Hayden to update his site. That's all I want to do. I want to read more on, I know, on I know Hayden's you, site. I'll be freaking cut and pasting my shit and putting it on yours. I get it. I get it. You like the guy who copies <laughs> I look forward to it, man. In the back there. I get it. It's but funny because I, mean, I sit right next to I, re, I sit right next to Hayden as well, so I'm I'm like watching him update it. I'm like I, I get to read it before it even gets posted. Jeez. <laughs> well, the thing is, like like Rich mentioned, you know, people like just to have a bit of the insight, you know, of what um, what inspires us or what we find interesting. You know, sometimes it leads them onto new things that they've never known about before. It could be a link to an art site hand that you know you like, or you might a particular artist who does things a certain way. Like, people find that stuff incredibly interesting. And even me as a developer, like, I follow different designers and different artists and things like that. And the post stuff that I'm fascinated by and the way they think about things, and it's brilliant. So I definitely feel there's a, there's a great uh, want for it out there. It's just... Uh, yeah, I, I do uh, agree, I actually. Uh, Hayden's right. And uh, the thing is, I think, like, like you mentioned before, um, 
that the, the last six months of a game can be the worst time because it pretty much consumes your entire life. And uh, so, but as he said, we're coming off that now. We can start, you know, living kind of like a, a regular life at least rather than sort of like like cave trolls, like burning the midnight oil uh, on the get on the game. So, uh, you know, it, it leaves us more room for all that type of stuff. And, and I totally agree. I think, I think, I think where the media is, the social outlets are now, um, you know, it's it's a great place for people to just put their ideas out and just sort of, and even people like new people who are kind of like wanting to understand how the games work and how how even to get into games. Um, Hayden and me actually recently did a Manchester Comic Con, and uh, we got I, we got a lot of people asking us how do I get into this? You know, we were there on the stands, and you know, uh, they're really curious. I mean, there's a lot of ways to get in, way more than uh, you know. I think when Hayden and me first started off in video games, um, you know, it wasn't as you know, it's easy. I think uh, you just have to know the right people. But now there's so many different ways. Yeah, and I didn't. I didn't like getting on that bloody stage in Manchester either. I don't like getting in front of people. I'm very shy. You don't like being in front of the camera. I don't like being in front of the camera, and I don't like being in front of the crowd. So I was very nervous. Like Ham was doing like fucking dancing around and acting the fool, and I was like just trying to hide behind the monitor while I was playing the game. So uh, uh, it was that was a very nervous time for me. Well, just so you all know that. Well, you know, if you, when you guys come to, uh, if you guys come to New York, either for the New York Comic Con or whatever, you know, let's definitely get together. You know, dinner dinner will be on us. And um, Hayden, you make oh. me feel incredibly old watching your kids grow up while I do the show. Just wanted to put that out there. <laughs> what? That? You make you make me feel old? No, really? you, no, I I no, feel I'm, old I'm, watching it. You know, because it's like you're like, oh, you know. My my daughter's doing this. My sons are doing this. This and this and this. And I'm just like, holy cow! It, just because, like I said, we've had a relationship during the entire duration of the show, you know? Yeah, no, it's it's crazy when I see what my kids are up to and stuff. I mean, you know, they're all pretty big gamers. It's weird, but except for my eldest daughter, she's she's not got no interest in games at all. But every other one of them, even down to my four year old, are playing games. You know, I'll be at work and then all of a sudden. Some will say, oh, you just logged in at home, and it'll be my four-year-old. He'll be just, like, loading into my account and trying some, I don't know, some stupid little demo that he can download, <laughs> you know, from uh, Xbox Live or whatever it is. So, and it's, um, it's, it's, I mean, they took to games really, really early on, and, you know, I don't stop my kids from playing games, you know, and they can play a wide range of games. I don't stop them from playing anything. I don't shield my kids from a lot of that stuff. I let them play it, and my kids would rather be playing out playing soccer than in playing games but they still love games immensely but I think the minute you try and put a restriction on that I think that's when kids want to play even more because their mum and dads don't like it I just say kids I love games as a kid growing up you, you guys can play it as much as you want there you go alright guys well I you've, you've answered all my questions everybody's questions in the chat so you know I, I, I appreciate that you guys taking the time out of course at Hayden Dalton on Twitter at Han Randawa. All the links will be in our show notes. Um, any acknowledgments you guys want to give out? Any shout outs? I can't think of any. I think it's just for me, it's got to be um, the team. Like, you know, you know, we hear a lot about individuals. We hear a lot about Joe, like Hayden and me, and we, we kind of go out there and we, we do interviews and things like that. But we, we've had a, an incredible team that's there, worked on Darksiders 1 and Darksiders 2, and, uh, you know, 
I would do that, and I would also shout out to the families that, because remember, these guys are away from their families a lot, so, you know, even the families are su supported in their own way. This is all the stuff that goes into this game. So this game you guys are about to play out there, Darksiders 2, just know that there's a there's a lot of been a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, and a lot of families who have waited at home, you know, the, you know, while while the guys went in and made this game. So uh, I really hope all the guys out there enjoy it. And you know, thanks, Rich, uh, again for having us on the show. You know, it's been it's been immense pleasure, uh, absolutely fantastic. And you know, wish you all the best and strength to this show gets more and more popular. Of course. Thanks a lot, man. I appreciate it so much. Um, of course. You guys need anything from us? Drop me a line, Hayden. You know where to reach me. Han, the same thing, and yeah, we'll, we'll make sure to take man. care of you guys. Absolutely. Awesome. Thanks, man. You sure there's no more questions? Is that it? Is that it? Is no, I think I think we're good. I I, I was shocked. The chat was kind of quiet. Most of the stuff I relayed really? was in the chat, and I see that you're in there wow. too, answering some stuff. So we're good. <laughs> All right, my All right, awesome. you know, All right guys. Pleasure as always. Thank you very much. Take care of yourselves. Hayden, I'll be Thank in you. touch. Han, see you around. And um, uh, let me know if you guys do the New thanks, York man. Comic Con in October. You know, maybe we'll link up, grab some chow or something. Absolutely. Absolutely. Man, that'd, be, that'd be awesome. I'd love to come to New York. Let's, uh, we'll sort it out sometime. Yeah, that's, uh, that's probably going to be the second week in October. So if, you know, you guys get a booth out there for THQ and you guys are promoting Darksiders, it'd, it'd be great to catch up with you guys in, re in real life. <laughs> Yep, I'm sorry. All right, awesome. Yeah, yeah, peace. All right, guys. I will t I'll see you around. Take <laughs> care guys. of yourselves. See you later, man. All right, thanks, man. All right, bye. Bye. All right, that was Hayden Dalton, Han Randawa from Darksiders 2. Again, you can follow them on Twitter at Hayden Dalton, H A Y D N D A L T O N, or Hayden Dalton on Twitter at Han Randawa. That's H-A-N-R-A-N-D-H-A-W-A. -A -A. Let me just make sure I got that right, because I, I mess up his name at least three times. Yes, H-A-N-R-A-N-D-H-A-W-A. -A -A. And you can follow them both on Twitter, and also their respective sites and all their links will be in the show notes, so be on the lookout for that stuff as well. Thanks, THQ. Thanks for Darksiders always for supporting us all the way to 150. And let's get into some wrestling news. We got a lot to talk about and we're going to do a sprint to the finish because I just realized there's about an hour of show left. But you know what? I'd give up the entire uh, the entire three hours to talk to those guys because they're, they're some upstanding dudes. And uh, let's get it rolling, shall we? All right, I was going to take the opportunity to talk about Raw and Impact, but you know what? You guys pretty much know my thoughts on both shows from tuning into the fan page, so let's get into some regular wrestling news. Uh, my Take Radio's wrestling segment is brought to you by WWE Shop Zone. Make sure to enter WWEshop.com and enter the promo code WWESAVE10. Allows you to save $10 on your orders of $70 or more. Again, WWESAVE10 at wweshop.com. All right, we got um 
some wrestling stuff we want to get into. And first thing I want to talk about is Karma's departure from WWE. Of course, there was a lot of speculation, a lot of rumors as to what happened with her departure. Primarily, a lot of people were concerned that it was due to her miscarriage. Some people were worried because it was of her weight. But according to TMZ, it seems that after she suffered her miscarriage, um, she put on some additional weight, which caused her to fall out of wrestling shape. Karma now is currently working on getting herself back into ring shape. Uh, She's got a team of fitness experts and therapists, and there's a rumor that she plans to document the transformation in terms of scoring a reality show. So a couple of production companies may get involved with that, and we may be seeing that in the upcoming weeks. We'll see what the deal is. Um, To answer a question, I see that Angel from Girl Gamer wants to know when the show will be on demand. We will be editing the show probably later tonight, early AM tomorrow. So you can expect it either by tomorrow afternoon or tomorrow evening, but it's going to go no later than tomorrow. So be on the lookout for that. Um, There is going to be an on demand version on blog talk radio, uh, but that audio is not that good. Usually the 96 K audio that we put on the site is far superior. So be on the lookout for that. I may swap out the audio from blog talk radio, which I found out I can do. So those of you that heard last week's show probably got better audio than prior shows. I'm going to be doing that effective immediately to answer her question. Um, jumping right back into the wrestling news. Um, TMZ was talking about Rosa Mendez being arrested for quote unquote public intoxication. Turns out that that was not the truth. TMZ reported that Rosa Mendez actually was concerned that her fiance, which worked for WWE, uh, Jackson, Jackson Andrews had been abusing her and he actually assaulted her in Vegas before she flew to San Antonio for raw. Uh, there was a police report put out uh, by San Antonio PD, but the story gets even crazier. Rosa Mendez filed a battery report and turns out this guy has a completely different life besides the one that he had with Rosa Mendez. Turns out that the guy, his real name is Andy Slocum, actually has a fiance in Texas along with Rosa Mendez. So he's actually dating both women at the same time. Mendez named Slocum in the police report said that she was beaten up by him on multiple occasions at their Las Vegas home. The guy has another fiance, which is Amber Stovall. And she was engaged to him also and had been dating him for four and a half years. They had a home in Houston. They have two pet bulldogs. So he's been actually leading a double life. Some crazy shit. So, you know, it's unfortunate what's going on with Rosa Mendez. Hopefully things turn out better for her. If you guys have been watching Raw, you will see that she wasn't out there with the Goya brothers. But we see what the deal is with that. Some crazy stuff. Also coming out of Raw this week was a tweet from JTG expressing his displeasure with what's going on. What It's been said in numerous websites that it stems from him not getting a good bonus um, based on the WrestleMania payouts. WrestleMania 28 was a record-setting event. We all know that. A huge moneymaker. But it seems that the bonuses giving out, given out to some of the mid-carders was, were not very good. And most of the mid-carters are just as unhappy as JTG, but they're not going to speak up out of fear for losing their job. So JTG, very vocal about it. I I do feel bad for the guy because JTG is not a shitty wrestler. He he has a good gimmick, and 
the problem is that they've they've ruined what he had. I think that his work with Crime Time was stellar. I think he has a lot to offer. I think putting it like I've always said, putting him with Ron Killings together was a formula for a tremendous success. Why they didn't do it? I mean, Kofi Kingston excels as a singles competitor, but Killings and um, JTG would have been good together. They could have done some really good stuff, especially because JTG is funny. He has good comedic timing. And he would have worked well with Ron Killings. Unfortunately, he's stuck in what I like to call mid-card hell. And he's going to be there for the foreseeable future. Hopefully, things pick up for him. But if not, you never know. He may get the old FD and end up in another organization. We shall see how it pans out. WWE announced themselves a brand new social media ambassador, which is going to be Jersey Shore's Paulie D for Raw next Monday. Paulie D will also be the DJ for SummerSlam's VIP party on August 16th. Obviously, I think Paulie D being a social media ambassador for the WWE is good. It's a nice pop culture name that's kind of hot right now. Um, he's actually one of the more likable people on the Jersey Shore. He's got a good career as a DJ. And I think he falls into that demographic that grew up being wrestling fans. So I think he's going to make it a little bit more interesting than Charlie Sheen has done. And I'm looking forward to it. We'll see if it actually helps out in terms of social media appeal next monday now let's talk about mr nash kevin nash is obviously older but established as one of the bigger names in the business make of that what you will personally i've always thought kevin nash was decent good on the mic but a decent wrestler anyway he did an interview recently with uh, grantland which was cited by countless sources and he pretty much said that Chris Benoit and Eddie Guerrero were the guys that marked the end of the industry. He took a very critical stance on smaller wrestling stars, and I'm going to share with you exactly what he said verbatim, and we'll take it from there. When Benoit and Guerrero hugged at the end of WrestleMania 20, that was the end of the business. Has business been the same since that WrestleMania? Has it come close to the Austin era? Has it come close to the NWO or the Hogan era? You put two fucking guys that were great wrestlers as the, that he let me rephrase that. You put two fucking guys that were great workers that were the same height as the fucking referees. And I'm sorry, man. Are you going to watch a porno movie with a guy that, that has a three inch dick? This is verbatim Kevin Nash. Even if you're not gay, you will not watch a porno movie with a guy that has a three inch dick. That's not the standard in porno films. So you put a five foot seven guy as your world champion. He took that, you know, he took that analogy referencing guys like CM Punk, Daniel Bryan, and he said they're not bigger than life. I bet they would walk through airports and not be noticed unless they had a gimmick t-shirt or the belt with them. Now, here's my issue with Kevin Nash. Kevin Nash only got popular when he was a bodyguard for Shawn Michaels. Not when he was Vinny Vegas, not when he was Oz, you know, the play on the Wizard of Oz. Kevin Nash was made off the work of a smaller wrestler. I don't give a shit what anybody says. Shawn Michaels is a smaller wrestler. He's not super jacked up. He's not freakishly big. He is a normal guy. If Kevin Nash thinks that his career would have been anywhere near the same had he not been aligned with Shawn Michaels, I truly beg to differ. Because that the whole NWO, all of that came from the click. It all came from his affiliation with guys that, while they were smaller than him, were regular regular sized guys. I mean, yeah, Triple H 
super jacked. But what about guys like X-Pac? X-Pac falls into that same thing. He goes and he bitches about these guys being smaller and not being the guys that can carry the company. But the worst part of it all is the fact that these guys were instrumental in his success in some shape or form. Whether it was the NWO with X-Pac and those guys, Shawn Michaels, all of that stuff. Where it was instrumental because of smaller guys. The era of the big jacked up dudes is over. It is over because nobody can feel a kinship with these guys. A regular kid that watches wrestling feels more connected with a guy like Daniel Bryan because that's a guy that he can say, hey, that can be me. Whether it's because of of his lifestyle choice as a vegan or because of the way he looks physically, it gives somebody role models that they can emulate. And kids nowadays, yeah, every kid's going to like a basketball player, but I know enough kids that like wrestlers that have gotten into wrestling, especially guys that I knew that were younger that have gotten into wrestling in some shape or form when they got older, it was because they watched guys that that they modeled themselves after, whether it was Randy Savage or Hulk Hogan or, you know, Jimmy Superfly Snooker. Yeah, these guys were larger-than-life personas, but even still, I'd rather feel a kinship with somebody who I can... Who I can be like, especially when you're when you're talking in regards to wrestling, people always feel a a connection to wrestlers that they follow. And the basis for it, yeah, part of it is persona, but it's a way that they relate to them, whether it's the the, the blue collar guy that is a fan of Stone Cold Steve Austin or the, the, the African-American kid that's growing up and feels a kinship with guys like The Rock or Guys like Kofi Kingston, you know, just just different role models. You don't have to be 6 feet 5 and 250 pounds. You know, Stone Cold Steve Austin, Shawn Michaels, most of those guys, yeah, they were over 6 feet tall, but they weren't these giant jacked-up Goliaths that you would expect. Stone Cold Steve Austin had a pretty decent shape. You looked at Stone Cold Steve Austin, you you said to yourself, yeah, I could go to the gym and get like that. Like, Stone Cold got drunk, ate barbecue, Still worked out, kept himself in order, but he looked like a guy that you could relate to. Versus, you know, say a guy like Batista, you know, 40-year-old jacked-up dude with a belly tattoo is not exactly something that you see every day unless you go to a really cheesy nightclub in Florida. The fact is that Kevin Nash's assumptions were were really, really terrible, especially when you're referencing guys that are deceased. And of course, part of it is is Kevin Nash working the internet and working the fans, but it was it was really just a, a a slap in the face to some of these smaller guys that have done tremendous things for the organization. Now, of course, the fallout of this was all over Twitter, all over. Uh, the best one, uh, G- Chris Jericho. I'll start with what he said. He said, "Funny how Kevin Nash says wrestling died when Benoit and Guerrero were champs. Yet the worst year for the WWE business was 1995 when he was on top." Of course, Kevin Nash responded to that and said, "Once again, the puppet master pulls the mark strings. New Jericho was a closet mark. First one eliminated on a bullshit singing show. Really." Chris Jericho, of course, in typical Chris Jericho fashion, responded, Hope Kevin Nash doesn't tear his quad tweeting. Hashtag typical big man. Hashtag NWO third wheel. Now, look at it as you will, but Chris Jericho was an incredible influence in the Attitude Era. Whether it was him interrupting The Rock, whether it was some of his legendary matches, him becoming the undisputed champion, the man of a thousand and one holds, Ralphus, 
The list goes on and on and on. And the best part is Chris Jericho continues to reinvent himself and stay relevant. Unlike Kevin Nash. When Kevin Nash came out and he tried to talk shit to, to CM Punk, he got outclassed. Completely outclassed. I mean, Quark, he's mentioned it a few times. It's like, as, as terrible and as crass as it is, nobody gives a fuck about Kevin Nash. If Kevin Nash didn't come into the ring for the next 10 years, I really wouldn't give a shit. I really wouldn't. His era has come and gone. I grew up in the Attitude Era. I grew up in the NWO Era. I loved it. It was great. It was a, a, a great time to be a wrestling fan. But you know what? Things change. Simple as that. Things change. Nobody gives a shit about you, Kevin Nash. I'm sorry. You want to make yourself relevant off the merits of guys that, yeah, they may not be the biggest guys, but they're more technically proficient than you. Be my guess. But it's really disrespectful to do that to guys that are deceased. Roddy Piper also said, he, he tweeted, how can you not dig Chris Jericho? I think, obviously, besides Chris Jericho, I liked what MVP had to say. MVP said, Kevin Nash is right. Smaller guys don't draw. I mean, who would pay any money to watch itty-bitty guys like Mayweather and Pacquiao? And, of course, you know, Twitter went crazy when he saw it, when they saw that. And he went on to, to close it out by saying, let the record show I like Kevin Nash. He's always been cool to me. I just don't agree with his opinion. Doesn't mean we're hostile. I'm not upset at all. I just sarcastically expressed a difference of opinion. Kevin has always been real cool to me. Bret Hart's brother also took to Twitter to take um, Kevin Nash to task. He said, I can understand where Kevin Nash is coming from, but I wonder where Shawn Michaels or X-Pac fit into this theory. Now, of course, like I said, Kevin Nash is gaming the fans, doing stuff to make himself relevant. Now, of course, we knew this was going to come to a head. Kevin Nash went on Busted Open, which is on Sirius XM. And um, he, he, he kind of backpedaled a little bit. And, and I just want to share what he said. Regarding the, the, guy, the smaller guys, he said, I'm talking about them as wrestlers. I'm talking about them as their wrestling persona as far as visual. I'm not talking about anything else. I've stated it before. These guys are incredibly great technical wrestlers, all of them. But there's a reason why Christian Bale is Batman as Batman has armor on and it looks larger than life. There's a reason why in the Marvel movies, if the guys don't have gigantic muscles and aren't oversized, they're CGI. I don't remember Stan Lee when he started Marvel Comics making a five foot seven guy. Again, I I understand where his logic is coming from, but when you read X-Men, Wolverine is billed as being under six feet tall. Wolverine in most comics is described as being 5'6", five, 5'7". Five, one of the reasons Wolverine is one of my favorite characters is because he is incredibly hostile, incredibly dangerous, and he's short. I, I like that. I like the fact that, it, they, that they painted him as something different. That's how it goes, yeah. I like how he cites Stan Lee for this stuff, but even Captain America started out as a scrawny guy. It's all about transformation. When you're, when you're a wrestler... You have to go out there and impress people and transform yourself, yeah, physically, but also from a persona standpoint. Kevin Nash using that as an analogy was such a fucking cop-out. And then, of course, he, he made sure to acknowledge Shawn Michaels not being a big guy. And he said Shawn Michaels was six foot one and was six foot one and a half and weighed 225 pounds in his prime. That's a big difference between five foot seven. That's a difference between six foot eight power forward and a seven one center. 
CM Punk doesn't have Shawn Michaels' physical ability. I mean, Vince Carter and Michael Jordan are the same size. Once again, using that type of an analogy and continuing to just shit on CM Punk is is stupid. Shawn Michaels is Shawn Michaels because that was what worked at the time. And I like how he was how he goes. Oh, he was six foot one and a half and weighed two hundred and twenty five pounds in his prime. Yeah, of course. But we also forget that a lot of wrestlers have lifts in their shoes and there's ways to make them look bigger. The announcers say that they're heavier. Half of the shit that wrestling shows you every week is not true. It's not. Some of these guys, when you meet them in person, they're not exactly the way they seem. It's a fact. Randy Orton, I met him in person He looks pretty much exactly how he does in real life. He's very lean. He has a huge head and big-ass hands. You would never see that on television. You just see Randy Orton, and you're like, oh, you know, it's the Apex Predator. It's this guy that bores me every time he's on fucking television. That's what we see. But a lot of it is based on persona. It's persona that sells wrestlers. Body type is just a, a different factor. There's no clearer definition of body type not having anything to do with wrestling than guys like Samoa Joe. Guys like Kevin Steen. I can go down the list of guys that weren't tremendous physical specimens and still delivered as performers. Mick fucking Foley. Cactus Jack. Mankind. Dude Love. You look at a guy like Terry Funk. Terry Funk wasn't the most physically gifted looking guy. But he made you believe in him as an athlete because of what he did in the ring. Kevin Nash is a complete douche. When it comes to that. And like I said, part of it is, is, you know, him making himself seem relevant. While he was on Busted Open, he also acknowledged what Chris Jericho said about him being champion and it being the worst time in the business. He said, absolutely disagree. When I walked in the door in 1993, we did a $100,000 gate at Madison Square Garden. My last show at the Garden, we did 309000 before I jumped to WCW and I was in the main event with Shawn Michaels. I absolutely disagree. The business was better when I left. Then when I got there, they asked him how he felt about John Cena. He said, I think he's fantastic. I think he stayed true. I think he's played the hardest part in wrestling, which is the white meat baby face. He never looks anything but fantastic. Even though he's not a giant tall man, he has a bigger than life personality. Once again, citing the fact that height has something to do with being over. Kevin Nash, you are so full of shit. You can't let go of the fact that the era of the giant jacked up dudes has come and gone. Please accept it. Please. It's it's absurd that he sits there and he shits on the legacies that these guys are out there doing. It's it's some sad shit. I'm sorry, but if Kevin, like I said, if Kevin Nash didn't do anything with wrestling in the foreseeable future, I wouldn't shed a tear. On the contrary, I'd rather watch Scott Hall half drunk do a match then watch Kevin Nash wrestle. I'm sorry. He lumbers to the ring. The only strength he has is mic work. Kevin Nash will make a tremendous color commentator, but please stay the fuck out of the ring. Simple as that. Moving on from Kevin Nash to some other news, and you can coin this in the uh, what the fuck wrestling news category, Randy Orton will be doing a sequel to 12 Rounds called 12 Rounds Reloaded. He sent out a tweet acknowledging it, saying, Looking forward to starting to starring in WWE Studios' new 12 Rounds Reloaded movie. John Cena, look out. If by John Cena, look out, it's him looking at the screen, looking completely boring. 
yes, look out for more boredom. Otherwise, John Cena probably is a better action star with his eyes closed than Randy Orton will be. Now, besides Kevin Nash being the only the, the only guy that I want to shit on in the wrestling segment, I want to talk about ESPN Radio's Colin Cowherd, who is the host of The Herd. He actually referenced CM Punk and his stance regarding Nike signing with John Jones. And, you know, it's it's fine. Like I said, I discussed some of it in the MMA segment, but I didn't like what Colin had to say about Punk regarding this. He said CM Punk opposes the signing of Jones because he feels his past with alcohol makes him a bad role model for kids. He went on to rip CM Punk and called him a moralist who shouldn't have an opinion on alcoholism, citing several wrestlers charged with DUI, as well as several drug-related deaths in the industry in recent years. Once again, this this shows the, the lack of education with regards to wrestling. To say that you know wrestlers die from DUI and wrestlers die from drug-related deaths, we know that. That's not a secret. But I understand where CM Punk is coming from because the guy is straight-edge. He promotes it actively in his persona so that when kids see him on television, they go, wow, you know, he doesn't drink, he doesn't smoke, and he's a pretty cool dude. Same thing with Daniel Bryan, and that 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 actually resonates with kids. You'd be surprised how many kids cite that kind of stuff because it's something that's put in front of them, and it promotes values. John Jones, yeah, sure. The only guys that know about what happened to him are probably MMA fans and people that read TMZ, but it just paints a different picture when... You're an athlete that prides themselves on being clean, on being um, drug-free or supplement-free, whatever the case may be. It just paints it differently. I'm not going to knock CM Punk for saying that because I kind of said that to myself when they announced it, only because I'm like, wow, the guy just got off this drunk driving charge and he's getting a, a Nike sponsorship. Like I said, it's not like you're doing it with GSP or you're doing it with Anderson Silva, which are guys that they conduct themselves a little differently. You know, John Jones for all intents and purposes, fucked up. CM Punk called him out on it. And to say things like, you know, like Malky Kawa saying that, you know, CM Punk is a glorified stuntman and that John Jones doesn't know who he is just shows the, 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 the huge gap between people's understanding of MMA and people's understanding of wrestling. Wrestling is a craft all its own. It requires tremendous timing, great physical prowess. And it, and again, it's a different type of animal than MMA, but it's no less vital for them to be well-trained athletes. It's ridiculous to call somebody a glorified stuntman with no understanding of what they do. I felt was in poor taste and Colin Cowherd, he, you know, to, to say that and to cite things like alcoholism and DUI and drug related deaths. Yeah, we all do it, but the same thing can be said about the NFL. The same thing can be said about MLB, major league soccer, tennis, all of that shit has its controversies. Even in the Olympics now, guys are admitting to cheating, guys that eat pot brownies, etc., etc. Using that as, a, as your example and your defense, completely fucking baseless. Simple as that. Alright guys, that's going to wrap up the wrestling segment. We're going to take a quick commercial break because I need some water. When we get back, we are going to talk some video games. We're going to try and sprint to the finish with movies right after this. Oh, hey, how are you? My name is Blaine. I run a podcast called Boy Stopping Radio. If you like to hear people talk about things, go to boystopping.com to listen to Boy Stopping Radio. It's an inconsistent podcast that might show up once or twice a month, but hey, guess who wins? You do. Thanks. 
My Take Radio's video game segment is brought to you by Creaction Interactive, makers of the upcoming crowdsource RPG Oravim. To continue to contribute, excuse me, to contribute and learn more, head over to creationinteractive.com. You can also check out their Kickstarter banner on mytakeradio.com. MTR listeners that contribute to the project will get a gift from Creaction for their contribution. These guys are 67% funded right now, guys. They need our help to get this game made. They're a sponsor of the show. They believe in us. We believe in them. All it takes, you could you could donate from as little as a dollar all the way up to $1,000 or more. 67% funded. They got 15 days to go to get this game funded and ready to go. Make sure to check it out. Go to their Kickstarter banner on MyTakeRadio.com. There will also be links in the show notes as well. If you need to learn more, you can also go to Reaction Interactive's Facebook fan page, which is listed in our favorites on MyTakeRadio.com as well. All right, let's get into these video game news for this week. First up, for those of you that are looking forward to PlayStation All-Star Battle Royal, I can tell you that if you are a PlayStation Plus member, you will get exclusive access to the beta before everyone else. It will be earlier access. A couple of people have been playing the beta from what I've heard, and PlayStation Plus members will be getting it before everyone else. So if you haven't messed with PS Plus yet and you want to play PlayStation All-Stars Battle Royal, make sure to get that PSN Plus membership out there. It's probably one of the better values because you get a ton of free stuff if you are a member. And of course, early access to the beta is never a bad thing. In some other Sony news, they're starting to release their new PlayStation collections. Uh, First up, you are going to get the God of War Saga, which is going to include... Uh, the two PS2 games plus God of War 3 and the two PSP games and exclusive bonus content. The other collection is going to be the Infamous Collection, which is going to include Infamous 1 and 2, and also the Festival of Blood DLC and some extra missions. The games are going to start at $30, so be on the lookout for that as news become available in the coming weeks. Of course, for those of you that listened to the show earlier on when we were talking to Hayden and Han from Darksiders, there were two modes that were announced. Of course, the Crucible mode, which is going to let you go through 100 levels and fight waves of opponents. And of course, the New Game Plus mode as well, where Death will retain all skills and equipment from the first campaign through the second one. So, there you have it. When you pick up Darksiders next week, you're going to get access to the Crucible mode, plus New Game Plus as well. I see that Slick has some some tough commentary on Festival of Blood for Infamous. He is not a fan, but again, if you do want to check that out, it will run you 30 bucks. Now, a game that I haven't talked about in a long time is Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, which a lot of people purchased because it was so well done and it was so much fun to play, but one thing was severely lacking, and that was online multiplayer. The game was just tailor-made for it. And it just never it just never reared its head. Well, guess what? Major Nelson announced that it is getting an update on Xbox Live on August 19th. So you will be able to get online multiplayer. And you'll also be able to get a new character, that being Wallace Wells. That's going to run you 400 points if you want to play as Wallace. But the online multiplayer is definitely going to be good. Just because... It's one of those games, like I said, it screams multiplayer. It's like playing Streets of Rage and not being able to use the other characters when people are coming over to visit. It's, it's the same type of gameplay, and it really needs 
the multiplayer element. I'm shocked that it took two years for them to do it, but I'm sure it's going to give the game renewed shelf life. In some other news, we were talking about Ouya a couple of weeks ago when we had Kevin Baird on. They have actually finished their Kickstarter funding and they closed out with $8,580,682. Originally, the goal was only 950000 Since closing out their Kickstarter, they've announced that they're doing partnerships with Namco and also Square Enix. There's also going to be multimedia applications and indie titles as well. Now that the backing is closed, you can pre-order the console for $109, and the consoles are expected to ship in April of 2013. For those of you that contributed to their Kickstarter, you're going to be able to pick up an Ouya console in March. 8 8 million reasons to keep an eye on that console. Holy shit. That's an amazing accomplishment, and to see... Uh, companies like Namco, Square Enix, and OnLive involving themselves is tremendous for, for a ton of reasons. I think that it's going to be something where it's going to put game companies on notice to see people investing so much energy into these particular genres. I did want to talk about the MPD numbers a little bit for the month of July to close things out. Um, hardware sales were definitely not as good as they should have been. Um, Here's the crazy thing. They uh, they came down 20% than in 2011. In um, 2012, the hardware sales, actually the overall sales, were at $548 million versus 686 for the same period last year. Hardware sales definitely took a, took a hit. Um, the 3DS did see a slight increase in sales from year to year, but... The crazy thing is that it's still down 32% from last year. Accessories continue upward, especially Skylander stuff. There's been a huge increase in accessories, um, 8% from July of last year. Physical software, though, went down 23%. There was a big decline just because um, certain titles didn't come out during the same time this year as they did last year. But some of the top titles that that did sell well were as follows. At number 10, Dead Island. Call of Duty Modern Warfare was 9. NBA 2K12 was 8. Assassin's Creed Revelations was 7. Call of Duty was 6. Arkham City was 5. Just Dance 3 was 4. The Amazing Spider-Man was 3, which Slick is actually playing and will be reviewing. Lego Batman 2 was obviously number 2. And NCAA Football was number 1. Now, this, this, le- that, this continues to reinforce the fact that their is always a dead period in the summer when it comes to game when your number one when your top five titles are all games that have been out for quite a bit you know it's it's the same thing we get every summer not only that the only i will tell you this the xbox continues to remain the best-selling piece of hardware in july making it it's ninth, making itself the night it's ugh, excuse me 19th consecutive month as leader in hardware sales uh, 203,000 Xboxes have been found new homes in the month of July. So people are still buying Xboxes, especially now that they're adding so much stuff, including Fios and all these different video applications. It's it's a no-brainer at this point. Uh, the only thing we can hope for now is, you know, with Darksiders and War for Cybertron and some of these other titles coming out, that we start seeing these MPD numbers improve. And I, and I have a feeling they will only because once we get into September and October, it starts being considered, you know, the beginning of holiday season, plus kids are going back to school, so they're going to want to take stuff with them to play. 
I definitely expect to see improvements in the coming months. We'll see how the MPD numbers look in August. I see that Slick is on the line. Let me bring him on real quick. Slick, what do you got, brother? What's up, man? What's going on? Um, I wanted to comment on something that, that Quark asked when Han and Hayden were, they, were on the line. He was saying, he was asking if Darksiders 2 would see um, playability via the Kinect. And, you know, I, I, I would, you know, I don't want to try to speak for them, but I could basically say no. And, I mean, here's the easy reason why. I mean, for a game to use Kinect, basically the, the developers have to create a whole new play system because the Kinect doesn't work the same way as the Xbox 360 controller. True. Whereas something like the um, the PlayStation Move, while it's basically a glorified remote, it still uses the base controls of the DualShock. Right. So it's not a big difference from using the actual controller. So that would be why a game like Darksiders 2 wouldn't use the Kinect. And you see very few third-party titles using Kinect. Right. Most of them are drowning games. Well, you know, I mean, the Kinect the is a very strange animal. I, you know, I see that, that Quark mentions in the chat that his Kinect is a paperweight. I actually, my Kinect gets a lot of use. I, I use it for the UFC trainer. Um, I use it for Fruit Ninja. I, more so as just a, a, a physical, as you know, just like like an exercise tool more than anything else. It's not like I'm going out of my way to play games that are super integrated. Like like Skyrim having Connect functionality, don't give a shit about. Same thing with Mass Effect, any of that. It just doesn't it just doesn't work the same way. I mean, for Madden, I know they're talking about that you can call the plays via Connect and and all that shit. You know, just real hokey, um, backwards compatible stuff. Honestly. First-party games that utilize the Kinect should really do it in a way that makes more sense, if you, if you get what I'm saying. I mean, a lot of the stuff is just, like I said, real hokey. Oh, you can do voice commands for spells or this or that. It's not the same as, say, playing like the UFC trainer, which I play, or Fruit Ninja, or um, the, the, the Western game. What the hell is it? The one with the marionette. Like, those are games that are built... Gunstringer. Gunstringer, thank you. Those are games that are built to to really utilize the full extent of that. Like stuff like Darksiders and all that stuff, man. It just for for people that are clamoring to see that on the Connect, I just I just feel it doesn't work the same. It's not like when you play stuff with um the PlayStation Move, you know, where you're holding a tangible device. In in regards to the Connect, it's like you are the controller, and it's going to take the enjoyment out of the game for you to have to like stand up and and do motions like you're swinging a scythe for death and all this shit. It's just it doesn't work the same way. So personally, I feel the Connect has a place, but it has a place with games that are built from the ground up and not all this backwards compatible garbage that they use to shill the system. And that's what I was. That's basically what I wanted to get across. Why you wouldn't see a game like Darksiders Two using the Connect, and you really, for the most part, will only see either. First-party games for the 360 using Connect, or games that Microsoft decided to shell out a shitload of money to, like Mass Effect, where the developers, you know, basically got paid 
to make a connect playable version of the game. Well, to touch upon what you know, what Hayden and Han were saying, even with the Wii U, without them giving up too much information, it's a completely different set of hardware that you're using for that. So when you look at something like that, it's just just tougher. I think that when you look at it from that standpoint, you you are running the risk of of doing something completely different, you know? That's how I see and it. And that's why with, with the Wii, not the, the Wii U, but with the Wii, a lot of, you know, high-profile games, the Wii version is completely different. No, it was, you know, the, the Wii version, and this is something that we're going to expect to see for the foreseeable future. I mean, even when we spoke to, when I spoke to Josh, who writes for us, and we were talking about the Wii U and the fact that the Wii U is not, you know, is, is barely as powerful as, say, the Xbox 360 or even nowhere near as powerful as the PS3. And, and the crazy thing about that, without getting into a, a deep debate, is just the fact that the PlayStation hardware is, you know, five, practically five years old. And it's still one of the most powerful chipsets out there. So, you know, when, when it gets to the subject of the Wii U, I, always, I feel very concerned that they couldn't bring the system up to specs where it could compete with something as old as, say, the PS3. Like, the, the 360 has a better experience overall. But when you talk about raw system power, the PS3 is it, you know? The, the, this, is, this is something that's used to, in, in conjunction with supercomputer hardware. And Nintendo couldn't even bring themselves to compete on that level. The Kinect, the PlayStation Move, all that stuff, those are all like fun side projects. Those are hobbies. Like, to quote Steve Jobs when he said Apple TV was a hobby. Same thing with Move and Kinect. That's just them letting you know, hey, we can do motion gaming if we want. You know, we'll, we'll, throw, we'll throw it a bone, but it's not our end-all, be-all. Nintendo, though, they, they, they kind of wrap themselves into this whole, hey, we're going to make this whole completely new immersive environment where gameplay comes secondary to, you know, where the experience plays secondary because the hardware isn't that powerful. And, and the, the reason I'm, si- I'm saying it that way is because you don't need PlayStation 3 graphics to enjoy Mario. You just need to enjoy Mario. You get what I'm saying? Yes. And that's Which that I will do on the 19th when Super Mario Bros. comes out. Exactly, but that's what I'm saying. Like the Connect and all that stuff. As much as people want to see all these other games and all this stuff with the Connect, the Connect is just a fun project. That's how I always look at it. It's just, it's just Microsoft's way of letting you know, hey, we got some shit that if we feel like putting energy into can be serious. Like I mean, it's cool being able to navigate the menus with your hands and and you know Minority Report style stuff and being able to command your Xbox verbally. That's all cool, man, but it's not the end-all, be-all. You know, like, you don't... It, it doesn't detract from the enjoyment of the system. Not at all. Anything else you needed to add, my friend? No, I was just trying to, you know... Paint a different picture? questions to go unanswered, basically. No, that's cool, man. I appreciate it, because not for nothing, if you don't keep track of this stuff, I sure as hell won't. <laughs> All right, man. I'll talk to you later. All right, brother. Peace. Peace. All right. That actually was a perfect way to close out the gaming segment. Let's talk movies. Spartans! What is your profession? (laughs) 
All right. My Take Radio's entertainment segment is brought to you by Shop HBO. If you're ordering any True Blood merchandise, make sure to enter Season 5 as your promo code to get $5 flat rate shipping. True Blood merchandise, Season 5 is the promo code you're looking for as MTR's entertainment segment is brought to you by Shop HBO. Now, first off, I wanted to talk about the Arrow TV series. Slick and I spoke about, spoke about it at length in previous episodes. Um, obviously, with the additions of characters like China White and Deadshot and also Deathstroke, who is possibly going to be appearing in Arrow, Superhero Hype reports that you're also going to be seeing a couple of other characters as well, including, but get this, which is going to be really crazy, you're going to have um, Firestorm making an appearance as well. So, you know, seeing um, half of Firestorm, which is Ronald Raymond, Involved means that there is plenty of potential for you to see Firestorm as well in Arrow. Now, the the funny thing about it is that people are saying that most of the characters in Arrow do not have superpowers. So I don't know if that's just a tease or if that's just a thing to throw people off. But you're starting to see some really cool characters making their way into Arrow. Like I said, China White, Deathstroke, which I'm I'm dying to see how they treat him for the small screen and Deadshot as well. Uh, the the whole firestorm thing can go either way. I mean, we've seen, excuse me, t- terrible TV special effects, and we've seen good TV special effects. It should be interesting to see how that pans out when it drops. Arrow will debut Wednesday, October tenth at eight p.m. So be on the lookout for that. We got some sequel news as well as Magnet releasing announced that they're going to release another Universal Soldier. Get this, Universal Soldier Day of Reckoning. Dolph Lundgren and also Jean-Claude Van Damme will be returning to reprise their roles as Luke Devereaux and Andrew Scott. So there you go. Another Universal Soldier straight to video. I bet you a thousand bucks is going to be straight to video. In some box office news, we got a three-peat as The Dark Knight was number one again. $36.4 million. Total recall came in at number two. Diary of a Wimpy Kid came in at number three. Ice Age Continental Drift at four. The Watch was five. Ted was six. It has a total of $203.4 million. Step Up Revolution was seven. The Amazing Spider-Man was eight. Brave was nine. And Magic Mike was ten. And some news that Quark brought to my attention, which I wanted to share with you guys. Those of you that were looking forward to seeing The Great Gatsby. This Christmas, unfortunately, we'll have to wait until the summer of 2013. I think one of the reasons that they moved this film was because they knew that they would be competing against The Hobbit, which is guaranteed to make a ton of money when it drops this holiday season. For those of you that were looking forward to The Great Gatsby, you're going to have to wait until the summer. Now we got to get into some Marvel movie news, and there's quite a bit of them. Um, For those of you not familiar with the Marvel Universe, you know that Originally, Spider-Man belongs to Sony, and um, some of the other franchises belong to other studios. As those licenses expire, they're being brought back in-house under the Marvel-Disney umbrella. Now, one particular character that's being discussed at length is going to be has been Daredevil. Variety reports that there is a uh, Daredevil reboot that's supposed to be off the ground by October, but if it is not in production by then, that the rights will revert back to Marvel. Now, of course, 
This gives Marvel some leverage in regards to other characters that Fox has, which would be the Fantastic Four. According to Variety, they're saying that Fox is close to getting Joe Carnahan on board to direct Daredevil and that they're going to use a Frank Miller-style 70s take on the character. You know, very dark, very violent. But if they don't get the movie into production by October 10th, those rights revert to Marvel. Now, Marvel is willing to extend the deadline, and in exchange, they want to procure the rights to a couple of characters, those being Galactus, Silver Surfer, and Uatu the Watcher. Obviously, with Guardians of the Galaxy and the involvement of Thanos, you can see why they want to use the Silver Surfer and Galactus, because those guys are essential when you're dealing with Thanos. No deal is on the table yet, but honestly... I wouldn't mind seeing Galactus and the Silver Surfer in Guardians of the Galaxy, especially when it ties into Thanos, because Thanos and the Silver Surfer have an incredible beef in the early Infinity Gauntlet books. And using the Watcher, I mean, it's a non-factor. The Watcher's just there. But I, I, I really like what Marvel's doing. They're like, hey, you know, we'll let you keep Daredevil, but we need these three characters. Now, if the rights revert back to Marvel, Marvel may shelve Daredevil for the time being and maybe bring him back in, and have him appear in another movie, which is what I've said is which I've said is something that I really want to see. Maybe Daredevil can pop up in Spider-Man or pop up in a Punisher movie, something like that, where you can kind of keep the character out there, see how the audience responds, and then do a new solo film. We'll see how it pans out, but those are the negotiations right now. We will trade you Daredevil for Galactus Silver Surfer and The Watcher. Once I hear more, I will share it with you guys. In some other Marvel movie news, Joss Whedon is official for Avengers 2. He will be writing and directing it. Not only that, but he is also going to work on the Marvel-themed TV show, which is going to air on ABC, so be on the lookout for that. Joss is also going to lend his creative talents to some of the other Marvel films. He's going to oversee how they tie into the Avengers, so should be interesting to see what's done with Captain America and Iron Man and even Guardians of the Galaxy before Avengers 2 comes out. Now that Joss Whedon is on board, I can imagine he is getting a fat payday for that. In some truly unnecessary sequel news, get this. Bloody Disgusting reports that Lionsgate is considering rebooting the Saw franchise. Why the fuck would you do that? Either way, they plan on bringing Jigsaw back. Uh, Saw 3D, which came out in 2010, was called the final entry, but we all know that nothing in Hollywood is final. So yes... They are going to reboot Saw and bring it back with a fresh coat of paint. In some DC superhero news, we all know it's been everywhere that Ben Affleck is being rumored to direct the big screen adaptation of the Justice League. As of right now, he's gotten the latest draft of the screenplay. But the thing is with a guy like Ben Affleck, and we've seen this before, if he directs or writes any films, usually he wants to be in those movies We all know that the movie version of the Avengers is probably going to include the core characters, Green Lantern, Wonder Woman, The Flash, Superman, and Batman. Affleck currently is directing Argo, which is going to come out October 12th, and then he's rumored to be attached to Stephen King's The Stand. So to see him tackle something like the Justice League is going to be very interesting, only because that's a a huge undertaking. Now, if if you want to apply some validity to the rumor that he has to star or be involved in the movies he directs. I'm curious to see what character Ben Affleck would play. Maybe Green Lantern. Green Lantern would work for him. Maybe The Flash. 
Definitely not definitely not Batman or Superman. So definitely do not touch those. But that's going to be a question I'm going to pose in the Facebook fan page. If Ben Affleck puts in his contract that he's going to direct but wants to star in the Justice League, who should he play? I'm curious to see what you guys say about that. So be on the lookout for that later on tonight on our Facebook fan page. Last two bits of movie news to close things. Well, entertainment news, excuse me. I got to remind myself that that's what it's going to be known as going forward. The CW is going to be developing a TV series based on Sleepy Hollow. Obviously, it's going to be a contemporary take, and it's going to follow FBI agent Ichabod Crane, teaming up with the town's local law enforcement to investigate various beheadings. Fox is currently also developing their own Sleepy Hollow, which is rumored to be directed by Len Weissman, who did Total Recall and Underworld. So there you go. Sleepy Hollow is going to appear in two different variations on two different networks. Honestly, we all know that if the CW gets Sleepy Hollow, they're going to have a really pretty emo-looking Ichabod Crane. Maybe the Headless Horseman will ride a motorcycle. You know, some some hokey teen tween shit. But who knows? We'll see. I will reserve judgment because obviously they do good work with the Vampire Diaries and some of their other shows. So I'm not going to shit on it completely. But the contemporary setting is going to make things very interesting. Last but not least, to close things out, the What The Fuck Movie News of the Week. The Hollywood Reporter has announced that Sony Pictures Animation has acquired the rights to the sitcom and animated series based on ALF. Paul Fusco, who was the original voice of ALF, a.k.a. Gordon Shumway, is expected to return for the film that will merge live action with CGI. Fusco also joined the project as a producer, along with series creator Tom Patchett and Jordan Kerner, who did the Smurfs. The original ALF celebrated its 25th anniversary last year. So there you have it, guys. We've seen the Smurfs on the big screen. We've seen some other favorites already make their appearances. Now we are going to see ALF appear on the big screen as well. <sighs> what, what can you expect at this point? I'm, I'm waiting for a Snorks movie. What about the Paw Paws? Can we get the Paw Paws? Maybe the Snorks? Um... How about El Cabang? Or we already saw Yogi Bear. So at this rate, that's what's going to happen. They're just going to crank out all these CGI-driven cartoons that are going to be lackluster and are going to make a ton of money in home video and are just going to tank in the box office. I love Alf. I grew up watching it. You know, him wanting to eat cats was always funny. But unless you're in my generation in the in the 80s, baby, or or late late 80s into early 90s, the, the concept of ALF may be lost on other kids unless you, you start putting out the toys and kind of keeping him out there to get the to get a little bit of a fire started from a promotional standpoint. People are not going to have any idea who the fuck ALF is. I'm sorry, but those are the facts. All right, that's going to wrap up the show for this week. It was a, a, a huge sprint to the finish. I know that the show will wrap up at least a live show will in 10 minutes, but it is incredibly stifling up here. So let's just wrap things up. You've just heard my take radio episode 150 for Thursday, August 9th, 2012. Got to close things out once again by wishing our very own captain quark a happy birthday. Make sure to hit up our Facebook fan page. Leave your well wishes there. Also look for him on Twitter at quark MTR. Tell him happy birthday. He is legal now. Now, if he commits any kind of murders on behalf of MTR, he will be tried as an adult. So please, Quark, don't kill anyone. 
we'd appreciate it. All right. If you'd like to be a guest on a future episode of MTR or for our interview series, MTR Behind the Mic or MTR Beyond the Mic, make sure to hit me up on mtrhost at facebook.com. Excuse me, mtrhost at mytakeradio.com. Damn Facebook email addresses. Got one of those too, but I don't use it. Again, mtrhost at mytakeradio.com is the email to contact me directly. If you're on Twitter, make sure to follow us at mytakeradio. Become a fan on Facebook. Add us to your circle on Google+. We're doing more stuff there as well. And last but not least, make sure to pick up the official MyTakeRadio app for $1.99, either in the Amazon Android Marketplace or in iTunes. Gives you access to 96K stereo versions of the show, plus exclusives like our two interview series, mobile wallpapers, and a ton of other stuff as well. Last but not least, you can listen to MTR on Stitcher, Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Zune Marketplace, and very soon in syndication as well. I want to thank the guys from THQ for coming through. Got to thank our advertisers at Creaction Interactive. Make sure to check out their Kickstarter page. Orvim is 67% funded. Let's make it happen. We got, I believe, 15 days to go. And of course, make sure to check out our partners at Unveil New York, Unveil NYC. Go to their Facebook fan page as well or look for them on Twitter. And of course, our friends at MMA Valor and our other friends at Fight Insight Radio. Thank you all for sticking with us for 150 episodes. We plan on delivering 150 more and a ton of cool shit. This is the start of something big, folks. Thanks for doing this ride with us, and I will see you guys next week. I'm out of here. Peace. That's all, folks.